Hello, my fellow Westorians. It is another lovely Sunday, and I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. This is Valar Reredus, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all. I can't do that with one hand. Seven Hells. So look where I am, everybody. Some of you guys may recognize this background. A lot of you guys will recognize this background. And I've mentioned ahead of time where I would be. For those of you who heard, I am in, well, near Boston at the Radio Westeros house. A lot of you guys recognize this background, like I said, because Lady Gwen has been in front of it many times. And I'm hanging out with them at their lovely home here with their excellent cats. And uh, there is a lot of snow here. This is new for me. I'm a dork about snow because I don't see it very often living in the South. We have probably seen snow maybe once in the last two years. I don't remember. That tells you a lot that I don't even remember (laughs) when the last time I saw it was. So I'm very grateful to be able to be up here and broadcast from their spot. I want to shout out those of you who support us on Patreon. It's very, very wonderful, and we appreciate it so much. And you can become a patron of, through patreon.com slash historyofwestros. Look at all the different benefits and things that we offer and select what is best for you. Also, thanks to Maura Lee for a couple of super chats before, as we're just getting started here, one of our most thorough, one of our best supporters, top supporters, and fa- uh, co-friend of... Uh, cat photos. We love to exchange cat photos. (laughs) And I want to give a shout out to our regular contributor, Joe Buckley. His Castles book is out. Yes. He's been, if you've been following him on Twitter or listening to his podcast, you are well aware that this has been coming. Uh, Hopefully you're, if you're not aware that it's out, well, it is just now out just a few days ago. So I encourage you all to go get it. You can get it through our website. I don't think we have a link up yet, but we will shortly if we don't already. Either way, you can find it in all the good places you can find books. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it maybe in your local bookstore. That depends. But you can absolutely get it through our, the normal means. So definitely check that out. Support Joe. His, he put a lot of work into this, and it's a great topic. So uh, I will have more to say on it once I've actually had a chance to read it. But like I said, it just came out. I haven't been able to do that just yet. This is the first one where we start and end with Sansa. She has eight chapters in The Clash of Kings. Three of them are spread out amongst the first 52 chapters. Then five of them between chapters 53 and 66. Of course, that's the effect of the Battle of Blackwater, all five chapters of which are next week. This week, three of the six chapters are set up for the Battle of Blackwater. And so before we get started and read the chapter titles, look who it is. Look, we've got a... It's Lady Gwen. Hey. And she's so happy, nicely bringing me coffee, which you guys know I, I can't function too well without. So Totally necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. You all right. So this week we have Sansa 4, the gang lights fires of all sizes, a.k.a. the one with Sansa's coming of age. John 7, the gang shares dreams, a.k.a. the one with eagle versus wolf. Darian <laughs> 12, the gang kidnaps the wrong sex worker, a.k.a. the one with fake news of dead Starks. Catelyn Seven, the one where there are no men like me, a.k.a. the gang frees the Kingslayer. Theon Five, the one where Asha passes through, a.k.a. the gang murders their own. And, and finally, Sansa Five, the gang sings a pre-battle hymn, a.k.a. the one where Cersei explains the dearth of sacking songs. <laughs> yeah, there certainly is the case. 
So there's the dream team, a concept a lot of you have heard of, mostly related to sports, but other things too. Here we have the dream theme. Brandon has been having them for a while now. That's It's not new for him, but he's finally accepted them and they're coming more often. So there's still a bit of a change for him. Soon he'll have another major awakening down in the crypts where he'll reach out to John, who will have his skin changer awakening via, of course, the dream. So that's all in this chapter. I mean, this, this uh, episode. Arya's been having a few brief wolf dreams of her own. Sansa is plagued by nightmares of the riot and other horrible things that have happened recently to her. Stannis dreams of his brother's tent a little bit before this. That's obviously not this chapter. But now Theon's having a lot of dreams, too. He's having really bad dreams, understandably. But there's a little bit of supernatural element to them, perhaps. And that's peculiar. With that, we have other pairings like comings of age and changing of character direction. So some pretty strong themes this time to keep an eye out for. Starting off with Sansa 4, the gang lights fires of all sizes, a.k.a. the one with Sansa's coming of age. Several of the fires are told of in the opening line. The southern sky was black with smoke. Yeah, it's like fighting fire with fire, because Stannis and Tyrion's clansmen are like setting fires like at each other. <laughs> if, if at each, you can set fires at people. That's what's kind of happening. And Sansa, of course, burns half of her own bed. So while they're burning, fi- burning things on the other side of the river, she's burning on her side, trying to cover the evidence of what she calls her body's betrayal. Another fire lit off screen, but told of in this chapter, is Melisandre burning the weirwood at Storm's End. It's casually mentioned by Dantos, but it's pretty shocking. It's such a thing to do, though it's not shocking in that it's surprising, because it's not the first time Stannis burns something or Melisandre burns something, not even the first weirwood that they want to go for. Uh, Dantos tells her to be brave, that despite Stannis' numbers, she'll be safe once, quote, his friend returns. And that's actually pretty true, because when Littlefinger shows up, he'll be with the Tyrells and Tywin, and that will be quite enough to beat Stannis, especially with the element of surprise. But whether that actually makes her safe, well, that's a different point. But it maybe, maybe at least makes her feel a little better in the meantime, but not much, because she's having nightmares of the mob, and it was terrifying. So this is an entirely normal reaction to have nightmares about that thing. And Sansa's already been having nightmares before that. She was having nightmares about her father's death, about Lady's death, about her future with Joffrey, and now, now this. So coming of age is not a good thing because she has to marry Joffrey. And she knows that the minute she comes of age, I mean, Joffrey flat out said, when, you're, you know, when you come of age, I'm going to put a boy in your belly right away. You know, and uh, that's terrifying because she hates Joffrey. And who wouldn't hate Joffrey? Instead of what should be a mix of fear and incitement, excitement, rather, she getting older is only fear. <laughs> it's only scary. There's no excitement to it. It's a, it's a great, here's a great line that, uh, but sad line that encapsulates what it's like for Sansa just every day. Sansa could go where she would so long as she did not try to leave the castle. But there was nowhere she wanted to go. Right? That's really sad. She has that freedom, but that's kind of partly... The point, they know there's nowhere she can go or that she would want to go even. And so they don't, they're not too worried about it. More on that later, though, because they probably should have been more careful with Sansa. Her interaction with Sandor is, of course, a huge part of chapter two. And I've got my hound shirt on in honor of that. And it comes before she, before she wakes up bloody. She talks to him, then she has her dream. They bump into each other a lot, it seems. And 
we know she's not looking for him because it's her point of view. And then there's no like, I wonder where Sandor is. I'm going to go find him. But if we had a Sandor point of view, you might, we might find him wandering towards where Sansa might be. You know, like the fact that they bump into each other so much might be not such an accident. Sandor might be seeking her out. We know he does sometimes for sure. But some of these other ones are a little more ambiguous. But I'm starting to suspect that maybe uh, they weren't so coincidental after all. Now, she looks him in the eyes and really sees him for the first time and has a really great reader. This is such a good line. She made herself look at that face now. Really look. It was only courteous and a lady, a lady must never forget her, cur- her courtesies. The scars are not the worst part, nor even the way his mouth twitches. It's his eyes. She had never seen eyes so full of anger. Yeah, because that is more important. What they look like on the outside is not as important as what they're like on the inside. And in this case, the eyes is, you know, it's been a long, long-term concept to say the eyes are the windows for the soul. And, you know, whether or not you believe that, it's true that you can read a lot in someone's eyes. And reading people and understanding what drives them, what moves them, what scares them, this is crucial to playing the Game of Thrones. It's a really key part of the overall strategy used by Varus and Littlefinger, effectively. They're very good at reading people manipulating them based on those reads, finding out what they want, finding out where their weaknesses, their failings, their desires, they're all these things that they do really well. Let other people try to do these things but aren't as good at it. Varus and Littlefinger are probably the best at it. There's some other characters who are quite good at it too, but this is an early sign of Sansa displaying that same talent for playing the game, for reading people. As for what's actually said between Sansa and Sandor, she says she should have thanked him for saving her, which, yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, but th- even this doesn't reach him. He just scoffs. He's like, Ugh. he reacts with the angry cynicism she's just seen in his eyes, saying that despite him having 30 to 1, they were rats and he's a dog. They wouldn't want to face him. So he's scoffing at his own courage. He's like, I'm not brave. I wasn't brave of me. I'm six foot six, terrifying, huge, and have a reputation. And none of those guys have any training. None of them have any armor or weapons. Like, that's not bravery. So... That's interesting because he's kind of right. He's kind of got a point, uh, but it's also just kind of rude because it's just being, you know, it's just general courtesy. She's not like lying to him. She really is thankful. Anyway, some there's some nice parallels to Sansa's mother's last chapter, which is three from now. Themes of truth and duty and, and seeing who someone really is. In, in this chapter for Catelyn that's coming up, she's going to talk to Jamie. And some of the things he says are mirrored or reflected by Sandor here. Both of them are great at killing, and they're both very cynical. And those two things are related, meaning the fact that they're cynical is partly because of all the killing. Sandor has risen high in the world because he's great at killing, and that tells him everything he needs to know about the world. He also enjoys killing, or so he says, but he's wrong that... Other men enjoy killing. Well, he says all other men enjoy killing. He's not wrong that some do. He uses Ned as an example. And we know that Ned doesn't love killing. We know that he, it, it makes him feel a little dirty. He goes and sits in the, in the godswood and cleans his blade and kind of prays. He's not, he doesn't take joy in killing. And Sansa, to her credit, reads that. She's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really buy that. She, her, I don't think that about my father. So Sandor is constantly angry. That's well established. But this particular night is worse because of the stress of the coming battle. He claims it doesn't bother him, the thought of death, 
But he doesn't really conceal his hatred of the fires. And we know that's probably the thing bothering him most about this. So, quote. True knights protect the weak. He snorted. There are no true knights, no more than there are gods. If you can't protect yourself, die and get out of the way of those who can. Sharp steel and strong arms rule this world. Don't ever believe any different. Add all this up because Sandor doesn't just hate the world because his brother burned him and later got knighted, and he doesn't just hate the world because of a lot of these other things. It's more complicated than that. He's a man that loves to kill and sees the evidence all around him that the best killers and those who command them are the real, quote, winners in life. And that's a harsh reality, and it's hard to argue that he's wrong. And he, he is prepared for Sansa's reaction to this, quote. Sansa backed away from him. You're awful. I'm honest. It's the world that's awful. Now fly away, little bird. I'm sick of you peeping at me. So yeah, while I'd agree the man has a point about how awful the world is, that is not an argument for making it worse, nor is it any kind of guide on how to handle social interactions when you're talking about it, right? We don't just all run around shouting out uncomfortable truths at all times. Every single person has at any given moment a lot of things that should not be said, at least not at that moment. You know, it's, there's tact, right? Sandor doesn't really have that. We don't just, you know, we, every truth needs to be guided by tact, timing, things like that. Now, perhaps any, beyond any of that, uh, lies a truth too hard for even Sandor to face, which is ironic given this is a chapter where Sansa finally takes this good long look at him, which is that he does have love in him. He doesn't want to soften. It's easier to exist in his state of traumatic anger because it's a great defense against facing the evils he laughs off as just part of the world. If he gives in to what he really believes, that would, you know, that, that might break him in a sense. So it's easier, it's like a defense mechanism to see, well, I'm just doing what everybody else does, I'm just better at it. It's, it's an easier truth to face than, than the alternative, which is that he could be a good person, he could turn around, he could do good, he, could, he can't fix the world, but he could help, he could be on the side of people who are doing, doing the right things. And beyond that even, though, he's just into Sansa. Not necessarily, I'm not even talking about romantically, which is an element that could be there too, but he does kind of respect her. And the two of them do have a lot in common, too, which he may sense on some level. He probably has nightmares, and he knows she does, or, and she talks about hers. And, well, he's definitely lost family, and so has she. So they have circumstances in, in common, and just like I was comparing Jamie to Sandor, Sandor is, doesn't really have that much control over where he is in life. Sansa, that point about Sansa, she could go anywhere she wants, but there's nowhere she wants to go. Where does Sandor want to go? Maybe he goes drinking and to see sex workers occasionally, but does he really want that? Or is that just like slaking a thirst or just, you know, trying to feel better temporarily? Saying that's somewhere he wants to be is is using the word want kind of lightly because he doesn't want to be in King's Landing where there's fire. He doesn't want to be in service to Joffrey. He doesn't like these things aren't aren't making him happy. Uh, So he's almost as trapped as Sansa, but not in another way, because he is able to fight his way out, which is something she couldn't do. Speaking of truths and uncomfortable truths like that, uh, he says he sees the world for what it is, but he's also blind to things right in front of him, which is part of what makes him so compelling as a character. That kind of contradiction, that kind of hypocrisy is normal. It's, it's authentic in that it's a human type of contradiction. And, and speaking of authentic or not, 
we have her coming of age, right? It's in a time in the book where a lot of characters are having a, a large shift in their arc based on who they are. Sansa's is more defined because, well, having your first period is, uh, guys don't really have a, an equivalent to that to mark their, uh, a change in, in their fundamentally who they are. And on the same token, we men aren't really in any position to judge whether this scene was written authentically because it's a very uniquely feminine experience. And well, from feedback from listeners, he did a good job. Maybe he listened to Paris. Maybe he just talked to other women. Ashea, would you agree with that? Yeah. Cool. That's great. Good job, George, for, you know, he did his research. He, he knew it wasn't, you know, something he could <laughs> speak to on his own. So oh, it's scary. Uh, <laughs> point, yeah. He represents that. Uh, and I think George has inserted some more depth to the duality of gender roles in medieval society, not just that, but in how they're both defined in terms of blood. Brienne and Catelyn, for example, discuss the difference between battling in, well, in battle and battling in the birthing bed and how both of those things lead to blood. Cersei explains it rather bluntly here. The blood is the seal of your womanhood. Lady Catelyn might have prepared you. You've had your first flowering, no more. Really, what it sounds like is it isn't just the blood of the birthing bed. It's just women just have blood, period. Men just when they fight. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. <laughs> women bleed way more often. <laughs> when the men bleed in battle, it tends to be more blood, but, <laughs> but it's still not as regular, not even close. <laughs> so this all really, I'm trying to make this, this connection here in, in how these, this, this duality of gender roles, and it occurs to me that the, the, the phrase blood is the seal of your womanhood. Well, take away the word womanhood and rung a bell in my mind and I looked it up and it's A Feast for Crows Jamie 1 quote Jamie had laid his sword across the warrior's knees piled his armor at his feet and knelt upon the rough stone floor before the altar when dawn came his knees were raw and bloody all knights must bleed Jamie Sir Arthur Dane had said when he saw blood is the seal of our devotion with dawn he tapped him on the shoulder the pale blade was so sharp that even that light touch cut through Jamie's tunic, so he bled anew. He never felt it. A boy knelt, a knight rose. Of course, that also makes you think of things like John, when he, you know, you knelt as boys, you rose as men of the night's watch. These are, these sorts of circumstances play out all over the realm in different ways with these sort of coming of age or coming into your own type stories or, or character arcs. So in both quotes, you have that phrase, blood is the seal. And in both cases, it's as if they're practicing bleeding in preparation for more difficult bloodiness in the future, right? Arthur Dane says, blood is the seal of our devotion. All knights are going to bleed. You may as well bleed a little bit now, get used to it. Same, that's kind of what a woman experiences every month. This is a warm-up for pregnancy, in a sense. Of course, it's other things too, but that's, uh, I'm looking at it that way, at least in this sense. So Cersei, uh, of course, has more to say about all this, um, and in general. As it often is with her, there's some truth or insight of value to what she says or thinks, but it's also couched in paranoia or pride or ambition or all those things, and thus it's distorted or even corrupted. So you really have to dig through it to find the useful parts, but they are definitely there. Here's a quote. Robert wanted smiles and cheers, always, so he went where he found them, to his friends and his whores. Robert wanted to be loved. My brother Tyrion has the same disease. Do you want to be loved, Sansa? 
Everyone wants to be loved. I see flowering hasn't made you any brighter, said Cersei. Sansa, permit me to share a bit of womanly wisdom with you on this very special day. Love is poison. A sweet poison, yes, but it will kill you all the same. I had a friend who changed her Facebook name to Love is Poison. <laughs> oh, yeah, so she did. And I'm going to quote her again later in this episode or mention her again later in this episode for uh, from stories of, of our friends reading the books for the first time. Sometimes humorous things happen. So anyway, her take on Robert, uh, Cersei here, her take on Robert is cutting and accurate. She's not wrong about Tyrion about wanting to be loved, but she's not someone you should listen to when it comes to love. Her experience with love, Cersei's, is forbidden by society and family alike. So how are you going to frame normal relationships, even normal arranged marriages, when this is your experience? Cersei's experience with love is basically Robert, which wasn't loving at all, and Jamie, which is shameful and should be hidden and, and all that. So she doesn't have normal experiences to speak of. So when she says love is poison, I mean, yeah, I'll look at her experience. I mean, I'm not blaming her for feeling that way, but it's not great advice because not everyone feels that way. Not everyone has that experience. Evidence suggests that many people have successfully loved without feeling like it being poisoned. So that's just uh, Cersei's bitterness speaking there. To be fair to her, though, she thought she had hit the jackpot with her arranged marriage to Robert. So she was really into it until she found out what kind of man Robert really was. And that, of course, is going to make you even more bitter than going in unsure and finding out it works out. So she had her hopes just do not demolished. She had really high expectations. This is pretty similar to Sansa, right? She was really excited to marry the king until she got to know him, just like Cersei was all, you know, very similar. She thought he was handsome, thought he was great looking, thought he was, uh, you know, a real shining example of what a king should be. Nope, not so much. And also, we can't help but notice how much Cersei says here in the last line of the chapter is awfully similar to what Gior Mormont says to John about love and duty and things like that. But Gior is bitter too, right? His son's endless quest to please Lanes Hightower, who was a very hard-to-please wife, is a big reason he has this attitude. Cersei doesn't know it, but she's just as much, if not more so, a cautionary tale as she is a mentor. And how fitting that a huge part of the reason for Cersei's bitterness is Robert Baratheon, of whom Gior Mormont was first thinking of when he uttered that similar line back in A Game of Thrones, John 7, which we'll quote right here. They say the king loved to hunt. The things we love destroy us every time, lad. Remember that. My son loved that young wife of his, vain woman. If not for her, he would never have thought to sell those poachers. Hmm, yeah. Way to victim blame there. But still, the point is... I don't think she's exactly the victim. I think they're both pretty culpable for that, I will say. Yeah, she probably encouraged the selling them. She wouldn't yeah. have been like, no, don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> she's yeah. like, do it. Whatever you need to get me those jewels. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're both pretty bad. But he, he's not wrong that if not for her, he would not have done that. So like, I guess that's true. It's still not... This still just kind of takes away Jorah's agency in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's still his choice. But yeah, but you're right, too. I, I see uh, super chat from Tommy Pappas, a.k.a. Hey, Mahelman. Thank you very much. He says, happy holidays and happy holidays to all of you as well. That's great. And a reminder that Tommy sent us a signed copy of Fire and Blood. We are going to be giving that away. I thought we'd be giving it away around Christmas, but that's not a that's not going to work out timing wise. But we, uh, we are going to have a, a live stream with Stephen Atwell at the beginning of the year. And I think we'll give it away then. 
And that'll be talking about the War of Five Penny Kings, by the way. So Nine Penny Kings, rather. <laughs> five penny. We're all going to do, we're only going to do yeah. the, uh, bigger, only half of them, <laughs> the bigger half. <laughs> which four get booted? Yeah, which four Penny Kings do we have? <laughs> that really Some, sounds like it's more of a Nickel King situation. <laughs> it's true. Which is a higher denomination. <laughs> So preparation from Battle Blackwater really starts here. I mean, there's other stuff a little bit before, but this is where it's it's people are really starting to feel it. And it's not just Sansa thinking about it and other people. It's not just Tyrion making battle plans, which that's been going for a while. I'm talking about the, the city really getting the mood of how, oh God, this is about to happen. Really love that as Catelyn has already been used as a camera perspective on the Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Forge, where Sansa's going to be taking that, that role over uh, from her mother. It's kind of neat. Now, it's, um, here's a, a quote that Joe Buckley pulled that I think is pretty neat. I hadn't caught this one. It's a long sail from Storm's End. The fleet will need to come up Massey's Hook and through the gullet and across Blackwater Bay. Perhaps the good gods will send a storm to sweep them from the seas. That's, it's, it wasn't a storm that swept them from the seas, but it's pretty much what did happen was they were swept from the sea and a lot of people thought it was the gods being on their side. And that actually fits the thinking pretty well because it's well known that Stannis does not, is, you know, is against the seven, he's with R'hllor. So a lot of people could tell themselves that the gods were against Stannis. And so the gods were th- therefore on their side and therefore the wildfire that blew all those ships <laughs> from the seas that's the storm. The wildfire is the equivalent of the storm here. They could say that, well, even though that was Tyrion's idea, they could thank the gods maybe for it working so well. I don't know. You know how these people think. They don't want to give Tyrion credit, though. Uh, Joe Buckley wonders what it would have been like if there wouldn't have been wildfire or if there had been a siege or anything like that if Tywin hadn't shown up. Because it would have been neat to see Stannis at the heart of another siege with Tywin arriving. We still will probably get to see Stannis in a siege with starvation and all those great things, all the things we love seeing at Castle Siege, because he's probably, I think he's going to take Winterfell, and then he's going to be kind of besieged by Winter and perhaps the undead. Yeah. It all comes back around again. Something about Dantos here, and, well, really, it's Littlefinger, his delaying tactics. Ah, Dantos is right, I guess, sort of, that it would be really hard to get Sansa out of the city right now because the city's on lockdown but it could have been done earlier and it, it, instead it's kind of awkward Littlefinger wants to keep Sansa for himself and Dantos is trying to keep her safe that they're hanging out in the city that could easily be sacked yeah it's just more Littlefinger treating her like a commodity really, rather than as a person so maybe that's not such a, a big deal after all but I think it's worth considering here's another quote that Joe pulled that I think has a peculiar little line in it I've lost count of how many I've killed since then. High lords with old names, fat, rich men dressed in velvet. Yeah, that's a line from Sandor. And what high lords has Sandor killed? That was the question that Joe raised. And I, I, I had that thought, too, when I was reading the book, but I forgot to make a note of it. So I'm glad Joe caught it. Uh, but I, I have no idea. Yeah, it's not even hi- just high lords, old names. Yeah, like who? <laughs> I mean, I guess, I to be fair, anything's an old name to the Cleganes. <laughs> good point, good point. If any of you guys have ideas, throw them at us cuz I do not. Honestly, I'm I'm baffled. It's something that would have happened off-screen before the book started, I guess. 
Some random thoughts from y'all. Scott Wartman says the maester's bleeding by trying to use magic with glass candles, trying to light the glass candles. That's the blood thing as well. A transformation or an understanding. Great catch, Scott. That is very true. A lot of them cut themselves on the glass candle. They're locked in that dark room with it. Didn't think of that. Very good. Very good. That's great. I wrote that Sandor facing those 30 peasants alone. Some people would think that's kind of unrealistic, but I, I kind of described it. Like right? it, it makes sense when you think about it. If they were coordinated and disciplined, they could take him down. Uh, but they're not. <laughs> they're not. They're starving, rioting people. They're not coordinated and disciplined. Yeah, 30 men with some, with some discipline and a plan could definitely beat Sandor. But when they're just like running around, not working together, not armed, just terrified, yeah, no, he's going to destroy them. So uh, it works really, it, it fits uh, accurately. I love too that Santa thinks of Aemon the Dragon Knight in this chapter. Though she does that a lot, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> it still ties in nicely with all the parallels this chapter has to Catelyn 7, again, coming in a few chapters here. Uh, and again, notably, the Xandor and Jamie parts, their comparisons. Because Jamie, as I've said many times, has a ton in common with Aemon the Dragon. So there you go. It's like a kind of misconnection there. Or reconnection there. Inverse connection. Yeah. Uh, the Wildling's lack of discipline is mentioned here. Uh, and that's important. Uh, Corin um, is saying the same basic things in John 7. That's, uh, it's brought up because Dantas is talking about Tyrion's savages. And of course, Cersei and, and Tyrion will discuss this as well. Cersei's unhappy that Tyrion sent the clansmen away, but he says they're better, they're more useful in the woods. That's really interesting because it's kind of, this is that whole concept that I was just discussing with people fighting Sandor, 30 random men aren't going to do much, but if they're coordinated and have discipline, maybe they could. Same thing with the wildlings. They're raiders. They're, they don't work together really well. And the same thing with Tyrion's clansmen. They work together okay, but they aren't disciplined. They're not, you know, they don't draw battle lines. It's, it's a different set of rules for them in terms of how they fight. So I think that's really interesting because it's happening in so many places. Stephanie the Peerless points out that Dantos is kind of bumbling here when he mentions the, their mutual friend, which, yeah, we know that's Littlefinger, and maybe that's just a, a way to make it clear to the reader. But it's also a great point that it proves he's bad with secrets, which is part of why Littlefinger just, there's no question he's going to kill Dantos after the fact once Sansa has been delivered, because he can't trust Dantos to keep quiet, especially because he's a drunk, right? Like, that's... As, as brutal that line of thought is, it's consistent with Littlefinger. You can predict pretty easily that Littlefinger will kill Dantos when you lay that all out, if you didn't know already. Archmaster Rennie wonders at all at the pair, at how true knights are, are paired here with the questioning of the gods, which I think is really fascinating. That's another kind of smaller theme. The, the idea that there's a lot of people question the gods in these chapters here. Sandor says, what gods? You know, are they the same ones that made the emperor that, that allow all this killing? And then Jamie says that too, says, what God, you know, the gods that do all this. So that comparison is there that these people cursing the gods and saying, you know, questioning whether they really exist or not. Even Stannis is like, yeah, I don't, I won't pray to gods that do that to my family. Point is, if there really are true knights, which there are a few, even if they aren't technically knights like Brienne, does that mean that there really are some gods? Interesting question. Of course, I have no answer to that. But it's a great question to pose. Uh, Matt Reese suggests that maybe the Greyjoy Rebellion is a time when Sandor could have killed a High Lord with an old name. Very good catch. That is a good example. That's the main, the, the biggest conflict that was fought in the Seven Kingdoms during Robert's Rebellion and the start of the books, or in between those two. So that fits quite well as a possibility. 
John Hagee suggests Sandor was at the sack of King's Landing, maybe, but I don't think he was because Gregor was only like 17 or 18 when the sack of King's Landing happened. So uh, Sandor was big enough. He killed his first man at 12, we learn very early in the Game of Thrones. So it's entirely possible he was big enough and ready, already like fighting alongside men much older than him because he was already as big as them. But we don't hear that explicitly. But I do like John's idea there. That's an, that's an alternative theory to Gregor. In fact, it could be both. He says he's killed high lords old names. That, that implies plural. Okay, that's it for Sansa 4. Moving on to probably the biggest chapter of the week, uh, the one that I think has the most open questions at least, the one that we have the most puzzling puzzling through to do. John 7. Gang shares dreams, aka the one with eagle versus wolf. Again, huge chapter. Turning point for John and his arc and all of A Song of Ice and Fire because it deals with his endgame, which is one of the most important endgames probably, his relationship with the wildlings, his future leadership of just not just the wildlings, but of everyone that he will be leading later. And mixed into all that, we have the supernatural. So it's also the one with John's first wolf dream. And that dream contains a tree and his brother, Bran, and a very angry, violent, and dead Aurel the Eagle. The chapter starts thus. It was dark in the Skirling Pass. And it's also the chapter where Corrin Halfhand talks a bit like Arthur Gain. Quote, and now they come, said Corin. That's a lot like, and now it begins. No one says, no, now it ends. But it's the last line of the chapter. So the chapter ends. So George is like, no, now it ends. <laughs> so the gang is running for their lives here. And for the most part, they, they don't succeed in running for their lives. Their odds of survival are so bad, Squire Galbraith stays behind to sacrifice himself and to buy the time. And he, like the rest of this party in black, is a distinct parallel to the men in white who gave their lives for the same person, Jon Snow. And if Corrin had already conceived the plan for Jon to join the Wildlings prior to the next chapter, when he you know, reveals that plan to Jon, then arguably Corrin has already decided that Jon's life is the most precious of their group, very similar to Tower Joy. How beautifully does that fit the aftermath at the TOJ? After all, his protectors are dead. He's taken in by a new protector, but only because he pretends to be someone he's not. He's not doing the pretending himself. He's just a baby. But still, his identity is concealed. Just as the Kingsguard are killed by the men who take in John, these brothers of the Night's Watch are killed by the men who take in John, the wildlings. So, how cool is that? But before Corrin dies, he's got some more mentoring to do. It's very important. I wonder if... It's hard to say because we don't see John's life with with his with Ned Stark, but it's it feels like he got more from Corin in these few chapters than he got from Ned in the chapters we see with him in terms of mentoring. Certainly more than John got from Gior. Gior tries to mentor him, but frankly, Corin's better at it. His advice is better. He's more open minded. Uh, he's got more experience beyond the wall, which is huge because that's part of his open-mindedness. He's like, giants? Yeah. Supernatural? Trees talking again? Yeah, it happens. That's, the, you know, he doesn't doesn't balk at that, where, where Mormont's kind of like, I don't know, I'm not sure about that. But Corrin's just, yep, this is how things are. No, uh, no question. One of these lessons that's really valuable is learn your men. Learn what they're capable of. Sometimes that means pushing them pretty far, or at least giving them a lot of leeway to make the choice themselves. And this is presented to us at the same time as another tale designed to blur the line between wildlings and other humans. The point being, I think, to show that they're all similar, to show that they're all humans. The only difference is what side of the wall they were born on and, and the culture they were born into. 
but also to keep track of those differences, not just to draw them down and to show that they're maybe not such a big differences after all, but to see what they are, because that's where those little cultural rubs come. And if, and if you want to repair the bridges, a uh, gap between two cultures, you have to be aware of what those differences are. So you can speak to them and work with them and compromise things like that. And of course, Corin's relaying to us about the type of person Nance was and all that. Super interesting. And as Joe Buckley points out, it needs to be done now because when you meet Nance later, you can't just, there's so much about Nance to introduce. You can't just do it all at once when you meet him for the first time. You have to set this character up because he's really big and important. Well, here's the quote. Was he a good ranger? He was the best of us, said the half-hand. And the worst as well. Only fools like Thor and Smallwood despise the wildlings. They are as brave as we are, John. As strong, as quick, as clever. But they have no discipline. They name themselves the free folk, and each one thinks himself as good as a king and wiser than a maester. Mance was the same. He never learned how to obey. No more than me, said John quietly. Now he's talking about not killing a grit. And surely this refers to John's upcoming sojourn with the wildlings, like almost like so much of this is, and perhaps his eventual ending among them as well, right? That's really important. And perhaps also a certain technicality he'll use to get out of the watch later, right? <laughs> ah, yes. My watch has ended. I was dead. But Corrin explains indirectly that John didn't disobey. After all, Corrin never actually technically gave the order to kill a grit. He knew she was no threat. So he used the situation as one of those tests to learn about his men. The rest of his party, Squire Dalbridge, Eben, Stone Snake, they're all older, experienced rangers. It seems like they've been riding with Corrin for a while, so Corrin already knows what they're capable of. So John is new, though, and, and thus needs some testing. He needs to figure this out. In terms of learning about your men, though, <laughs> finding out that John is a warg, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty big detail to learn. Even if he suspected it already because he, you know, Ghost was there the first time Corrin met him. Anyway, I like a lot. I love, in fact, how Corrin breaks down John's dream. A wolf dream, the half-hand said. Craster told the Lord Commander that the wildlings were gathering at the source of the milk water. That may be why you dreamed it. Or it may be that you saw what waits for us a few hours farther on. Tell me. Again, just look how easily he accepts it tough truth here about the supernatural, but also doesn't just fully buy into it. He's like, it may be that you dreamed it. You may be that you dreamed of something you were told about. That it, It's a beautiful breakdown of the possibilities there. Very simple and succinct. And though he breaks down why. Quote continues. The cold winds are rising. Mormont feared as much. Benjamin Stark felt it as well. Dead men walk and the trees have eyes again. Why should we balk at wargs and giants? So there you have Mormont's uncertainty. He feared it, but he wasn't sure. And But the question is, Benjamin Stark felt it as well. I don't recall us knowing that until now. Uh, we knew he was worried about wilding. He talked about Mance Raider, talked about Pingman on the Wall, talks about you never know. But specifically this, I don't remember Benjamin saying that to anybody. So that's very interesting that Corin, he said it to Corin. Uh, so if, any, if I'm wrong, please point that out. But I don't think we knew that. So John wasn't slowly awakening his powers. This is a really big point. This is the, the bulk of what I want to talk about in this chapter. Even though there's so many other important things happening, John's big dream is an extremely pivotal moment because 
when he, he's realizing that it's not just these supernatural things around him, it's supernatural things in him too. And that's kind of what happened with Bran. It's, it, we had the same, I, I basically laid it out the same way. The old powers are awakening and he's not just a spectator of the supernatural. He is the supernatural. And what's weird though is Bran and Arya have little snippets of Wolf Dream. It's like builds up slowly. Arya's kind of isolated. She doesn't have anyone teaching her about it, but still they grow in intensity and duration. And even though she's still confused about them, even now at the beginning of the Winds of Winter, they're, they're very clear. They're, they're intense dreams. They're, you know, vivid. And with Bran, it's similar-ish, except that he had mentor. And he has Jojen coming along telling him about his dreams and telling him, no, that's, that's really what's happening, which is important because he has Maester Lou encountering <laughs> the uh, supernatural elements here, saying, no, that's not supernatural. That's just a dream. But the point behind all that is, is John doesn't have any of this buildup. He just goes straight to having a huge dream. And kind of like Bran, he doesn't exactly rush to accept it. At first, he's like, oh, it's only a dream, right? And then he says, or they say, rather, I'll say, skin changer, said Eben grimly, looking at the half hand. Does he mean the eagle, John wondered, or me? Skin changers and wargs belonged in old Nan's stories. Not in the world he had lived all his life. Yet here, in this strange, bleak wilderness of rock and ice, it was not hard to believe. So you can see he's a little stubborn, but he can accept hard truths fairly quickly. That was set up very early for him. And by the end of the quote, he's already softening to the idea. So maybe I shouldn't even be calling him stubborn. It's just that he doesn't rush to accept the idea right away. But he does accept it pretty quick. John has the kind of stubbornness that reminds us a lot of Stannis. But a major difference is that John doesn't have all the pride like Stannis does. He's got a lot less pride. Uh, pride makes it hard to admit you've made a mistake or failed in some manner. But John doesn't seem to have that problem. Now, to be fair to Bran as well, he doesn't know any other skin changers. So when he's doubting all this, it's he doesn't have examples around him to kind of say, oh, there's another skin changer. It makes it pretty hard to deny it when you see another one. But John has already killed another one and is soon hunted by that one, even though it's dead. That sounds funny, right? He's killed one, but is then hunted by it. So that's his, you know, the second life in the eagle. A side question we considered before is why Corrin chose John. And again, I brought this up. He's open to the supernatural. Put yourself in Corrin's place here. You're Corrin half in. You're pretty sure the cold winds are rising and you see a son of Winterfell with an actual dire wolf following him around, not to mention the coloring of said direwolf, <laughs> right? So it's not hard to see how Corrin, with an open mind, could have been like, hmm, yeah, I have a suspicion about you from the moment he first saw him, right? So that's a nice contrast to how other skin changers identify John, which is through magical means. It's not just a piecing together the evidence. They just seem to know. It's like a, a sense they have. But Corrin, yeah, he, he doesn't do that. So it's basic compared to the supernatural. That's the point, right? It's, uh, yeah. I said that Corrin figured it out with with, uh, with common sense and logic. Maybe that's not so common after all in Westeros, <laughs> especially the open mind part. The wolf dream reveals what John is to Corrin and the rest. It makes it very hard to deny. But they have no way of knowing that that's really what it is. Uh, and they definitely don't know, at least until like, They learn that it's real pretty quickly but they don't know that it's his first wolf dream. That he's so put off and unsettled by the experience of his dream might cause them to realize that. It might be like, so he sure is acting like he hasn't done this before. 
And well, that is, they'd be right if they thought of that. So like Brand Brand starts to get longer and longer dreams, gets more and more control, gets more and more control over summer, gets more and more control over other animals. And then, you know, and during that, he's getting mentoring from Blood Raven and the children, of course. It's similar with Arya, like I said, but without a Jojin or even a Blood Raven or Child of the Forest. Her mentors are faceless men, and that's they're teaching her entirely different things. But still, as I alluded to earlier, she, without understanding or guidance, she's having little quick Nymeria dreams in this book to longer Nymeria dreams in a song uh, in a storm of swords to skin changing a cat during the blind girl chapter in a dance of dragons. On the other hand, John here in this chapter, as we just said, has his first, and it's not a short snippet like it was for Arya or Bran. They get the wolf equivalent, wolf dream equivalent, Arya and Bran do of a, of a movie or TV release trailer. Like they get a teaser and you get a trailer and then the trailers get longer. And then finally the whole movie comes. This is a completely different pattern for John. There's no trailer or teasers. There's not even going straight to the movie. It's going from nothing to like a screening of all three Lord of the Realms movies. (laughs) And I didn't pick that example just because it's a long fantasy epic. In John's case, it really is a three-part dream. Starting with the dream of the direwolf pack, transitioning to a dream of Bran communicating with him, uh, transitioning to becoming ghost and seeing the wildling army laid out along the milk water with the giants and wargs and everything. Dream seems to end only because Orel attacks Ghost, and the pain drives John out. In Baramir's chapter, we learn uh, more just directly and distinctly the mechanisms here, so we have a lot more to consider when we're rereading this chapter. Let's quote parts of the dream and break down it, uh, break it down in those parts. So, before go. I start the quote, can I bring up? This isn't super relevant, but you were talking about Arya and Bran warging, you yeah. know. And I just think it's pretty interesting, the idea that, a, you know, you could be a skin changer and a warg, you know, yeah. not just like there, there's a delineation like Arya is a skin changer and a warg. She skin changes into cats. Yeah. And I just. But John's I, just a warg. I guess. Yeah. But I, I, I wonder <laughs> if John tried or was separated from ghosts or any of these, like if it would come out with another creature oh, and the oh, same yeah. way. Um, anyways. Interesting point. Yeah. Alice, Alice, son of a bit, <laughs> Twitter handle, suggested saying, John's a warg, Ari's a skin changer, and Brandon's a green seer. Yeah. Which is, that's pretty much what you're saying there, uh, just said slightly differently. Mm-hmm. And I, so I agree with both of y'all. That's a really good way to put it, because, yeah, unless we see John in a different animal, or even, you know, then he is a warg only. Only. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So here's the first part of the yeah. When he closed his eyes, he dreamed of dire wolves. There were five of them where there should have been six, and they were scattered, each apart from the others. He felt a deep ache of emptiness, a sense of incompleteness. The forest was vast and cold, and they were so small, so lost. His brothers were out there somewhere, and his sister, but he had lost their scent. He sat on his haunches and lifted his head to the darkening sky, and his cry echoed through the forest. A long, lonely, mournful sound. As it died away, he pricked up his ears, listening for an answer. But the only sound was the sigh of blowing snow. John? The call came from behind him, softer than a whisper, but strong, too. Can a shout be silent? He turned his head, searching for his brother. 
for a glimpse of a lean gray shape moving beneath the trees. But there was nothing, only... Lots of things jump out here beyond the fact that it's John's first wolf. The sadness of separation from his pack weighs heavily, but it's peculiar that he howls because that's John as Ghost, not Ghost alone, because Ghost doesn't howl. That's how we know it's John as Ghost, because if it was just Ghost, Ghost doesn't do that. Uh, It's said he's lost the scent of his siblings. Is that because they're on the opposite sides of the wall? I think it is. Uh, But let's not call that canon. It's, It's just a good theory, I think. It's always interesting to consider John seeing himself as a brother to the other Starks when truly he's not. He's their first cousin. But Ghost is truly the brother to those to his littermates, his packmates. So that part fits. He hears his brother say his name and expects to see Summer when he turns his head, which he must have recognized the sound of Bran's voice. Somehow he knew it was Bran because why else would he expect to see Summer? But instead of seeing him, he sees, well, well, the wording is really important here. So close. A werewood. It seemed to sprout from solid rock, its pale roots twisting up from a myriad of fissures and hairline cracks. The tree was slender compared to other werewoods he had seen, no more than a sapling, yet it was growing as he watched, its limbs thickening as they reached for the sky. Wary, he circled the smooth white trunk until he came to the face. Red eyes looked at him. Fierce eyes they were, yet glad to see him. The werewood had his brother's face. Had his brother always had three eyes? Not always, came the silent shout. Not before the crow. He sniffed at the bark, smelled wolf and tree and boy. But behind that, there were other scents. The rich brown smell of warm earth and the hard gray smell of stone and something else. Something terrible. Death, he knew. He was smelling death. He cringed back, his hair bristling, and bared his fangs. Don't be afraid. I like it in the dark. No one can see you, but you can see them. But first, you have to open your eyes. See? Like this. Can anyone else, I just have to ask, hear my cat meowing? I can. (laughs) Okay, well, anyways. Yeah, he's just... Behind it all, there was also a cat. (laughs) So that's why I was laughing a little as I read that. He's so cute. Yeah. Okay. And the tree reached down and touched him is the last line. So the touching is like awakening. John doesn't have, like I said, John has no other dreams like this. Even, and I'm not talking, I don't mean that this is his first wolf dream. I mean that he doesn't have dreams like this later. So that's further evidence that it was Bran reaching out to him. And it refers to Bran's own awakening. He says, not before the crow. So that's when he had his third eye. Now, the death part will reason that he's smelling death is probably because Bran is in the crypts right now, right? Ditto the sprouting from solid rock because the werewood, because uh, Bran is down in stone crypts. So that makes sense. Though so it's interesting how strongly that feeling of death is, that it's something terrible, uh, which is that, I don't know that it would be something terrible if you're just having these corpses lying there. It's not like there's killing we're talking about, but so that might be some vague foreshadowing for the crypts of Winterfell being something terrible because they might rise. Now, here is the other side of this, supposedly, which is Bran 7 later in this book where he uh, thinks about this dream from his point of view. Quote. Here in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb, his third eye had finally opened. He could reach Summer whenever he wanted, and once he had even touched Ghost and talked to John. So maybe he had only dreamed that. 
So that's that's peculiar, right? That John that he or that Brand thinks that he only dreamed that. This seems to connect the dot, but I have questions. John thinks he sees Brand in his dream, and Brand seemingly con- confirms it on his end. But why is he so unsure? Why does he think maybe he had only dreamed that? Because this was a very intense, specific dream, and he hasn't been having trouble remembering his other wolf and crow type dreams. That at least not that we can tell. I, just, yep. I wonder what, what it looked like on Brand's side, too, though. Yeah, me too. Was he it's, a tree in it? Yeah, maybe it wasn't as intense on his side. But yeah. it, regardless, even if you set that aside, he's awakening John's powers, it appears. Like, how is that something a fledgling green seer? Like, he can barely control Summer at this point. So how is he awakening John's powers? That's peculiar to me. And be, and then it just is m- magnified by the, the peculiarity of him not being able to remember it very well. So even if we set aside the memory part, we still have this issue of how does he do that? That's a really seems like a powerful thing to do. Like it's it's maybe what Bloodraven did to Euron or or to to actually did with Bran here when we saw that in his coma dream. So we have to be, open ourselves to the possibility that there's something else going on here. One theory I've seen is that it's another being pretending to be Bran, like Bloodraven. But I don't really like that idea because why? What's the point? Nothing about this dream is has to be brand he's waking you know john just finds himself looking through ghost's eyes and wander you know has that part of the dream that accomplishes the goal right why does the dream's not going to fail because he doesn't see brand in it so i don't see why that matters i just don't understand what blood raven's end game would be or why he would care about masking his own presence in this dream so what we might be left with here is a case of future brand impacting the past. As tinfoily as it may sound on the surface, I just can't think of anything else. And you guys know I'm not a fan of time travel stuff. So, you know, I wouldn't go there unless I kind of had to, or at least I, you know, unless I really think the evidence leads there. And I, I'm not so I wouldn't go idea. to the past either. <laughs> <laughs> I like the internet too much. <laughs> But you can bet on sports like like uh, Biff Tannen. <laughs> I don't think I know results of sports games enough. No, oh, good point. You got to take an almanac back with you, like Biff Tannen. <laughs> yeah, I guess there are almanacs still. I, I don't see them ever. <laughs> good point. <laughs> so, if it's a time travel thing, or even if it's not, either way, why? Why is this happening now? Why is John's first wolf dream happening at this very precise moment with such intensity and severity and mystery? Again, that applies whether it's future brand or current brand. Now, the the decision tree is different, but it still doesn't really lead us to a concrete answer either way. Okay, so let's talk about the timing first. This isn't, it's not like a, I have a to-do list and five items down is wake John's skin-changing powers or his warg abilities. I don't think that's the case. I think that this timing was precise or somewhat precise. I used to favor the idea that Bran and John had their dreams linked by Bloodraven, like did some sort of magic to link them and that helped. Kind of like Snoke doing that with Ray and Kylo Ren. But why? Spoilers! <laughs> <laughs> If John's powers needed awakening for some purpose, then why can't Bloodraven just do that himself, right? Why can't Bloodraven awaken John's powers? Why is it Bran? There's no continued mind link later between John and Bran. They don't, like, keep talking, so it's not like a bridge that's established they can keep using. 
It's, as far as we know, this is a one-time thing. So again, why? <laughs> What's up with this timing? John, it's as... Uh, I have a theory that's dark. The problem here is that Orel didn't know about Ghost, right? I brought this up earlier that the wargs can, or skin changers can sense the presence of another skin changer. We don't exactly know how. It's some magical means. When John killed Orel, Ghost was nowhere nearby because of all that climbing. John had to climb up the mountain and yeah. But Orel attacks Ghost explicitly because he senses John's presence inside the wolf. So add all that up. John's wolf dream may have doomed Corrin and the others. Without John's presence inside Ghost, Orel may not take note. He's like, oh, there's a wolf. I don't care. <laughs> oh, it's a dire wolf. That's interesting. But he doesn't sense John in it, so it doesn't set him off. Because John Orel hates John. And when he senses that presence, it makes him want to kill the wolf. If that wolf didn't have John's presence, Orel wouldn't have come for him. Huh. So if we add in the time travel stuff here, then it's almost like Bran is wanted, or whoever wanted Ghost and John and Corrin's party to be discovered. Why? I'm not sure. But it led to John joining the Wildlings, which might be the reason why. But I don't know. That's that's my best guess at this point. This is kind of a new theory. Back in the day, you know, in the older days of Westeros.org and these other for, uh, forums, time travel brand wasn't really a, a big theory. It wasn't super popular, and it certainly didn't have a lot of specifics to it. Uh, we didn't know about Hold the Door. So this is a new area of theorizing for the fandom, roughly speaking. And I'm kind of blown away by some of these, these revelations. The Wilding Army was also rather already suspected by Lord Commander Mormont, and the Wildlings don't even end up fighting, right? <laughs> they fight the dead and run back to the wall. So John seeing the Wildling Army in his dream doesn't really work for explaining why his powers had to be awakened at that particular time. If, if that didn't make sense, I'll say it a different way. It wasn't to alert the, the Night's Watch about the Wildling Army. That wasn't the purpose of having that dream then. Even though that's the first thing that happens, he sees the Wildling Army. They already knew the Wildling Army was there. They just didn't know how big it was. So this isn't super a super big revelation for them. They knew the army was around there somewhere. They had had lots of evidence for that. It was a confirmation, not a, oh my God, there's a big Wildling Army here. So again, the timing is peculiar. Melisandre later will talk about the Wildlings as a doomed people who hardly matter. But that could be another thing she's wrong about. Because I wonder about the role of other skin changers in the story. Quite a few of them pass through the wall. We got Borok, the bear guy. We got, I forget their names. There's a bunch of other skin changers that can't, you know, pass through the wall and swore to you know, not be raiders or what have you, to follow Stannis or what have you. So maybe they're important. Maybe these other skin changers, maybe their magic will be needed to fight against the dead, or at least an understanding. Maybe maybe that's maybe they're maybe they're important. Maybe they're not just going to die out. So that would imply that the wildlings are important because most of the skin changers, the vast majority of the skin changers out there, are wildlings. So just before the chapter ends, don't forget, Corin is still not a hundred percent sure about John's dream being supernatural or being a true vision. Then they see the eagle and are uneasy at the sight of it, but continue forward. That's the proof that Corin is still isn't sold yet. If they knew, the eagle would be like, "Uh oh, let's get out of here." But then they find Ghost, and Ghost is wounded, and they're like, oh, that's exactly the moment Corrin says, time to run. Because that's when he knows the eagle really did attack Ghost. That's when he knows that it was, uh, what they saw was really there, and they know that they've been spotted. The other rangers don't seem to fully comprehend, and maybe 
because they're not as disciplined of mind as Corin, or maybe they just didn't realize it quickly. And John doesn't either. But I think Corin knew they were probably doomed the second he saw that eagle. He just needed the confirmation to be sure. That's a rough spot to be. You've got a, you're in a position where now you have to hide from an eagle? That's basically impossible. Corin Hoffman. It's my nightmare. Not- <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm afraid of birds, so that is my actual <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> and you can see why, right? That's uh, scary. So a man as brutally honest as Corin Halfhand is not going to fool himself or lie to himself about avoiding the eyes of an eagle. But he's got to try. He's got to try. He's got to come up with other ideas if he can. For example, they later they pass through a mountain. Eagle can't see that, but they can see him come in. It didn't work, but it was a it was a worthy try. Again, this is where we have to ask ourselves, at what point does Corrin come up with a plan for John joining the Wildlings? If he hadn't before, he's certainly about to now. I love, too, that the chapter ends so poignantly with, again, a Tower of Joy moment, but also with an inverse of the wall's horn blast. They hear a hunting horn and know the Wildlings are coming, and indeed, one blast does signal brothers returning home. Uh, Joe Buckley says this is the site of the best Corrin moment, bar none, for, for him personally. He's telling of how he let John make his own decision to learn more about him and how that is part of being a leader. Corrin may have well have been holding a, I am giving you lessons you are going to use later on a banner stitched in wildfire font. <laughs> That's some good language there, Joe. <laughs> yeah, uh, Joe also says, I really don't think we talk enough about Bran and John's connection as much as we should when compared to the other sibling connections, especially John's, like John's. John and Rob are a big deal. John and Arya are a big deal. John Brand is pretty important too, and it's probably going to be uh, rising in importance later. John starts the chapter off basically pushing Corin to ask him what happened with Egret. He wants to be criticized. He wants to admit it. He doesn't. It weighs on him. It's a very Ned moment, as if which is common-ish for John. And uh, as I pointed out earlier, Joe points out similar things. We were on a we were kind of on mind link on this one. He says, Corrin's response is so anti-Gior. It's honestly refreshing. <laughs> and uh, Joe also agrees with me that, that Corrin may be the one that taught John the most. Hmm. This is another quote that Joe pulled. I think is really good. It's, it's, very, it's two lines, but it says a lot. This is no army, no more than it is a town. This is a whole people come together. <laughs> Even with this sudden revelation of immediate danger, we get hints of how John sees the wildlings as a people, not an enemy. Thus laying more groundwork for dance. That's really important. Uh, a couple comments from y'all. Seabell says, John and Corin's conversations remind me slightly of Jamie's interaction with Loris. Oh, very good. Yeah. When we get to that, we'll look back on this and do that. Take a look at that uh, detail. Well, look at that with more detail. From our Facebook group, um, I just want to point out great conversations happening on our Facebook group. This one isn't directly related, but it is indirectly related because we're talking about John's identity here. And he started a great thread about whether Eamon or Benjen knew about John's identity good example of the type of discussion we have on our Facebook group. Stephanie the Peerless once uh, has some alternate interpretations, which is good uh, of the of the dream, because this is important. We need to do this because if it's time travel, Bran, and not Bran in the crypts right now, then the stench of death and the darkness and the stone werewood have different meanings. So what are some of these alternate interpretations? Well, the stench of death could be Blood Raven's cave full of skulls, right? That definitely fits. Uh, the stone werewood, that's a little tougher, but werewoods turn to stone when they're old. So maybe it's just that. I don't know. That's, that doesn't work quite as well, but it, it's, it kind of works. And this, the cave is stone, 
and there's Weirwood, you know, outside and inside. So eh, it could be it. It could be. Should have mentioned this when I brought the Facebook group. We now have a Slack. It's for patrons only right now, but we're also going to open up a Discord eventually, and that will be for everyone. But uh, I haven't done that yet. But um, Pat Riley, aka Sir Slorp, is the one who designed our Discord, and he's curious, so I thought I'd mention that now. And we will. Uh, I I think we'll launch that as soon as I get back from Boston. Actually, I don't want to do it when I'm out of town. But yeah, there's no there's no more reason to be waiting. So yeah, we'll get that we'll get that launched. Uh, I, I kind of want to do it at the same time as Slack, but. Uh, two at the same time is a bit rough. So space them out about two weeks. And then we'll be get we'll be getting going. Um, I definitely want it out before Storm of Swords, which certainly will be will happen if we get it done this month. And uh, also from Here Be Dragons, a super chat saying Ashea is the best. It is known. That is definitely true. It is known. And Matt Reese says maybe when you're in the Werewood net, you're connected to all of the history at the same time, including your past self. So Brandon Werewood interact with John means Brandon Winterfell sees it as well. So. And maybe there's like it's time. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're thinking about this wrong. Maybe it's not future and past and now that it's just all a continuum. There is no future or past. It's just all timeline or all. Oh man! Yeah. Whoa! You gotta take a hit from the bond before before you think about that one. Or something stronger. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or something stronger. Take some shrooms. Take some. You know, werewood paste or shade. Yeah, werewood paste. Exactly. Let's stay in the world here and. Yeah, because that is kind of what the sense we get from when Bran starts to look through the werewoods in the Dance of Dragons more specifically and more thoroughly. There is this timeless quality to it all, where the werewood just is, you know, and it's just, it's kind of timeless. But so that's a good idea to consider it in these in this light. That is it for John Seven. As I said, that was probably the biggest one we're going to do today, but we've got lots more to go. Tyrion Twelve. Gang kidnaps the wrong sex worker, a.k.a. the one with news of dead Starks. There's quite a bit more good food porn in this chapter. And with that, we're reminded of the extremes in this society. A meal this lavish while a city starves. And Tyrion thinks of it thusly. Pod dressed him for his ordeal in a plush velvet tunic of Lannister crimson and brought him his chain of office. Before this ordeal of a dinner, Tyrion gets the same fake news others do, the same that Kat's going to get in the next chapter, which is more relevant to her. Bran and Rickon are dead, and everyone knows that will provoke a response by King Rob. But Tyrion is more interested in Cersei's response, which is eh, Tyrion kind of wearing blinders when it comes to his sister. He's uh, he's always focused on one-upping her, and so is she, focused on one-upping him. Or worse, as we saw in Sansa 4, a mere two chapters before this one, Cersei is getting more and more paranoid, and that's when she's at her worst and most wild. She'll be even worse than this worse later when there's even less in her way to check her and more for her to fret about, particularly the Tyrells and other things like Oberyn Martell, things like that. She takes Alayaya hostage instead of Shay, and even taking Shay wouldn't have changed much because though Cersei doesn't believe it, Tyrion wasn't going to do harm to Tommen or Joffrey. He wasn't. There's during the Battle of Blackwater, Joffrey's visor is open, and Tyrion's like, close your visor. I don't want you getting hit by an arrow. Like, that is not the kind of thing that someone who wants Joffrey dead would do. He'd be like, yeah, keep that visor open, bro. Hopefully an arrow takes you out. You definitely don't tell him to close your visor if you hope he dies or if you want him dead. It's a small, subtle moment, but it's pretty clear that other people are suggested killing Joffrey around him. Tyrion doesn't like that idea. He's, he thinks it's monstrous. Or at least he's just not willing. Maybe he doesn't think it's monstrous. He's just not willing to do it. At least not at this point, right? He certainly has darker thoughts about Joffrey later. Now, 
she take uh, again so with the hostage situation here she's threatening him into doing something he was going to do anyway so he does something he'll do many times in the series be the monster they expect him to be basically the quote here if she thinks me such a monster i'll play the part for her yeah kind of like what he does at court when he's being put on trial for a crime he did not commit yeah this is when he threatens to beat and rape Tommen if that's what's done to Alayaya. Which, of course, he has no intention of doing, but he feels like the threat will work. Yes, it does. To Tyrion's discredit, though, he never saw this coming and realizes he should have. We talked about this a while ago. It's like, how did he not realize the danger of these girls? As we often pointed out in Sansa's last chapter and at other times, despite all her flaws, Cersei is sometimes insightful. Maybe even often. It's just couched in wrongness. It's just mixed in with mistakes. So that's uh, something coming up. All these things that she points out about Tyrion and how he can be manipulated and how all men are, you know, think with their <laughs> what's between their legs. She makes some strong points about that, but ultimately she's wrong about Tyrion's intentions. Here's something that's uh, interesting. Tyrion tries to search for the secret entrance to his room. The same secret entrance he'll later use to enter and kill his father and Shay. A mosaic? Shay nodded. They were colored red and black. I think the picture was a dragon. Otherwise, everything was dark. We went down a ladder and walked a long ways until I was all twisted around. Once we stopped so he could unlock an iron gate, I brushed against it when we went through. The dragon was past the gate. Then we went up another ladder with a tunnel at the top. I had to stoop. And I think Lord Varys was crawling. Yeah, so compare that to when Tyrion actually sees it himself. The juncture was otherwise empty, but on the floor was a mosaic of a three-headed dragon wrought in red and black tiles. Something niggled at Tyrion for a moment. Then it came to him. This is the place Shay told me of when Varys first led her to my bed. We are below the Tower of the Hand. The reason Tyrion can see the mosaic is because of a light source in the room, and there wasn't one before, meaning before he got to the room. In other words, he's walking through dark, dark corridors, and then he walks into this one room that has light. And it happens to have this mosaic and these very distinct uh, features. So I do believe Varys may have allowed Shay to see this mosaic. She says Varys made her wear a hood, not a blindfold. So she had to know, or he had to know she'd see that. So, so much is correctly made about how Tyrion is so much like Tywin. We, we, we blow that horn as loud as anyone. Here's a spot in which he's not. If Tywin knew that Varys had access to his bedchambers, are you kidding me? He would not just be like, oh, okay. Because <laughs> Tyrion's like, you got to tell me where that is. And Varys is like, you got to let me have some secrets. How does Tyrion not say, no, you're going to tell me where that is? Tywin would absolutely be like, you're telling me where that is or I'm killing you right now. And if there's other passages into my, yeah, this is a, uh, Ty- Tyrion should be a little, should have been a little tougher on Varys here. Uh, another topic of discussion here is the clansmen. I mentioned that in the last chapter about how their discipline matters so much. I guess I don't really re- need, need to rehash that, but it's important to note that Tyrion is very wise in using his men the way they should be used. And Cersei doesn't, have this military background or this experience. And so she sees it as evidence of Tyrion uh, sabotaging the war effort or not protecting Joffrey. 
Speaking of Cersei and Tyrion, a long-running and still unclear debate is who ordered Sir Mandon Moore to kill Tyrion? The candidates are most likely Cersei, Littlefinger, and there's an outside chance of Joffrey, but I, I doubt that. Joffrey and Tyrion really go at it next book, and we see that Joffrey mostly aims to embarrass Tyrion. He likes to, he's trying to one-up him, because that's what Tyrion does to him. They, they kind of go, kind of go back and forth. That's not really a, I'm going to kill you, you're going to kill me. That's, it's a different sort of revenge that Joff wants on Tyrion. You know, that's kind of an interesting thought you're bringing up, like Tyrion, I mean, Joffrey wanting to one-up him. Yeah. I think if you want to one-up someone, you have some respect for them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, you don't do that. You don't one-up people you don't give a crap about. Yeah, Yeah, so that that shows that he's like, Tyrion's really smart, and I want to appear as smarter than him. Yeah, okay. You want to, yeah, he wants to be, yeah, that's a great point, yeah. And that's the kind of, like, simple-minded uh, power games that uh, Joffrey's mind would be, you know, <laughs> spinning on. Cersei's access to Mandon Moore needs no explanation, but it's useful to point out that House Moore is in, yep, the Vale, and he came with John Aaron, which so did Littlefinger. So there's that very much proximity that they have. So in Cersei's case, this chapter is a turning point, though. Cersei has clearly been spying on Tyrion and, and his people, clearly watching him, and we've seen them clash and argue several times. The one-upsmanship is there with them, just as it is with Tyrion and Joffrey. But if she wanted him dead, there's been no indication until until this chapter, only until the end of this chapter. Tyrion's batch of threats here at the end are delivered using Tyrion's best impression of their father. It's easy to get wrapped up in Tyrion emulating Tywin because that's what he knows best, and that's just a, such a big part of Tyrion's arc is how much he's like his father. But Cersei is also very intimidated by their father, right? So Tyrion acting like Tywin might make her raise some childhood feelings that it would not raise in anyone else because they didn't have Tywin as their father. And she knows that, well, if he's really being like their father, then he's really dangerous. He's a Lannister. If he's promising to do these things and Lannisters always pay their debts, well, she's paranoid, as we've established. So with these threats delivered in a Tywin-like voice, with a Tywin-like demeanor, that could really scare the crap out of, Tyr- out of Cersei. And you could see why she would go from one-upsmanship to small power games to, I actually have to kill him. Tyrion did his best to be convincing, so I think that it, there's a lot of room here for this to be the right theory. I still lean towards Littlefinger. But I'm not going to explain that here. We'll talk about that later when when Tyrion actually loses half his nose and, and all that. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But one really big quote here. I want to jump, uh, take a, a side tour detour to uh, a quote. Um, he mentions that one day he'll turn Cersei's joy to ashes. That line's always been pretty big, right? I mean, just getting his revenge on Cersei or coming back to her actions against him, coming by, back to bite her in the butt. But is it even huger? I know that's not a word, but is it huger now that King's Landing is likely to get burned? Your joy turning to ash in your mouth? I mean, it could be metaphorical in that he'll be on Danny's side and they'll be burning all sorts of things, turning all sorts of things to ash because it's doubtful Cersei's going to be in control of King's Landing when it burns. So that's kind of a, a, an argument against this theory. Still, the idea is bolstered if we recall that Tyrion turning on his family is foreshadowed from Tyrion 1. I mean, that wolfish grin, among his other details, like his connection to dragons, kind of lays that all out. So we, what we might be seeing here is a 
an indication on what type of uh, revenge Tyrion will get on Cersei. It may involve uh, fire and blood. Uh, Joe caught a great little line here that's dark and interesting. What would you do if Joffrey and Tommen were murdered, is the line. And, well, <laughs> we're about to find out, unfortunately. That's sad. Because, uh, yeah, I'm sure we all agree Tommen's not likely to uh, last through the winds of winter. Hmm, yeah. It says a lot that Tyrion is surely thinking of Shay as Tysha in this moment, meaning a lover captured by a hateful family member, possibly soon to come to harm. That parallel is easy. But a subtler point, and this is a great catch by Joe Buckley, his response to getting out of a situation that he's thinking about Tysha is to emulate his father, the, the man who did all that harm in the first place, the man who inflicted all that on Tysha and on Tyrion. I mean, Tysha took the brunt of it, but it certainly messed up Tyrion too. It's a cruel, somber thing to see his turn, to see this, to see his twisted smile as he's threatening Tom. And that is, the, it's as distinct a moment of, learn that from your father. I learned that by watching you, right? Except Tywin's not there, but still, that's the point. It's, it's a, a point about, John, in his past chapters, and Sansa, these two chapters that we've covered already, Sansa's doing her duty. John is, is uh, well, rather, Sansa's duty is more, more uh, esteemed in Sansa 5, which is coming up. John is being dutiful by telling Corrin about uh, what he did with Ygritte and, and his sense of duty coming up later. This is the legacy of Tywin Lannister. Tyrion is acting like his father, and it's awful. When John acts like Ned, it's not awful. It's great. When Sansa acts like her father or her mother, it's great. Usually. Yeah, so a couple comments from y'all. Tree Girl thinks it was Cersei. She, she, would, uh, she does think it's Cersei that arranged for Mandon Moore. She probably felt she had no more need of him once the conflict with Stannis began because his military leadership was useful, but once the battle is on and once that's all the dice is, once the die is tossed, then you don't need him anymore. And she also said maybe Littlefinger wasn't uh, so afraid of Tyrion. Uh, and if he did come after him, he might want to rub it in his face. Yeah, those are those are good points. Certainly not conclusive, but solid evidence. Uh, certain, certainly good arguments. Also on the subject of Cersei, Littlefinger, and Tyrion and all this, it's like some kind of spy tryst with the Kettle Blacks. I, I need to do a little cleanup. Last episode, I made a small mistake saying that uh, I had forgotten that their father was already in the employ of Littlefinger before they even got here. So while Tyrion's laughing at Cersei secretly over how Bronn has turned them into double agents, they're actually triple agents. I thought you, you did clarify that. Oh, did I clarify that? So, well, oh, okay. someone corrected you with it, you know, in our chat, our lovely okay. chatters. But yes. I think maybe there was, I thought maybe someone corrected, you pointed that out after we stopped recording. So anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. Good to clarify either way. Yeah, as you can never re- remind people enough about the number of, of confusing kettle blacks. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned to Yoke Boy sitting here, I was like, uh, or like earlier today, I was like, I cannot keep these kettle blacks straight. He's like, yeah, even if you memorize it a month later, it's gone. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> if they had that for any of their trivia episodes. They should have. Yeah, maybe they should. <laughs> no one will get that right. <laughs> that's why they don't have it. But so that's interesting, too, because if we think ahead. It's going to get more complicated because all three kettle blacks are in serious trouble. And Littlefinger probably won't do much of anything for them because he can't really. It's like, well, these are toxic assets now because, of course, he thinks of people as assets. And that will be a problem for their father staying loyal to him. If, if he sees, perceives that Littlefinger is, is no longer helping them, then he's not going to stay loyal to, to his boss. He'll stay loyal to his kids. Okay. Catelyn Seven. 
the one where there are no men like me, a.k.a. the gang frees the Kingslayer. The book is 15 chapters from ending, but this is Kat's last chapter. It's also interesting in that it's the first extended look at Jamie as a person up close. I mean, he's been a major part of the narrative, but it's generally from a distance, off page, right? He's, he's got that encounter with Ned. It's a few other moments, but very little. This is the first, like, real good long look we get. And it's easy to forget this because he's so prominent later. Everybody thinks about Jamie Lannister so much as an important character, but it's, it's easy to remember that it's only late in The Clash of Kings where that really starts to take center stage. And it's also confused by the fact that he takes center stage right away on the TV show. So it's easy to miss that it's not the case in the books. When, you, when you're doing a reread, you're reminded of that. So here's the first line. Even though Jamie's such a big part of it, the chapter does not start with him. The Great Hall of River Run was a lonely place for two to sit to supper. She gets the same fake news that her sons are dead and she feels guilt as much as she does despair. Because, well, there was that turning point earlier uh, that she could have gone back to Winterfell, but she's, you know, stayed in the Riverlands to help the war effort to go nego- do negotiations, do all these different things. So that's part of where her guilt is, though. If we're being fair, mm, I'm not sure she would have been able to stop Theon, but maybe she would have had better plans than than Theon, than uh, Lewin and Roderick as for how to handle Dagmar and all those other things that got them in trouble. But that's just something we can't know. Yeah, and with, with how poorly she treated Theon, she might have had really bad luck there. <laughs> good point, good point. She sits with her father. There's just more suffering. It's just this, so much pain she's going through here. She wants what she wanted before the war, for there to be no war, for her family to have peace and prosperity. But she's not as high-minded as she used to be because it's she's in desperation mode. But where before uh, she had higher hopes for things going well, the more longer this drags out, the, the worse it gets. And of course, there's nothing like her sons being fake killed, but she thinks it's real to, to take all that despair and magnify it a thousandfold. Moving ahead to Jamie, because that is the bulk of this chapter. Jamie's banter is impressively cocky and sarcastic. I find these exchanges to be a lot of fun, but behind it, you know that he's just putting up airs. A lot of this cockiness and sarcasm is not genuine. He's just being the man they expect him to be, which is part of his whole spiel, part of his attitude. He, in this conversation, he does a lot of the things we saw Sandor and Sansa talk about. He questions the existence of the gods. He questions knighthood and vows and all these other things, even though he is one. So, well, let's see a quote here, and we'll continue with this thought. What gods are those, Lady Catelyn? The trees your husband prayed to? How well did they serve him when my sister took his head off? Jamie gave a chuckle. There are gods. Why is the world so full of pain and injustice? Because of men like you. There are no men like me. There's only me. An iconic line. How true is it, though? He sort of contradicts himself a little here, just a page or two later. After getting drunk and egging Cat into hearing about how Brandon and Rickard Stark died by Ares's hand, he says this. Brandon was different from his brother, wasn't he? He had blood in his veins instead of cold water. More like me. And then Catelyn says, no, he was nothing like you. <laughs> then he says, well, whatever you say. So I wonder that Jamie is the one revealing the story of Brandon's strangulation while saying he's like Brandon, right? This is telling in a foreshadowy way, or it will be, if he strangles Cersei. If that moment happens and it's from his POV, I wonder if he'll think of Brandon then too. And as for himself, how will he die? 
how will Jamie die? If his sister is strangled and he burns, that'll be a bit on the nose, won't it? <sighs> like, you know, he goes the way Rickard did as Brandon goes the way Cersei goes. Hmm. For Brandon and Rickard and Ares, this is all a revelation to Catelyn because Ned didn't tell her the whole truth about this. He kind of skipped over the worst details. But she believes it, as she should. And it's interesting because this is getting into Jamie's interesting code of honor, which is that he's, I mean, he's not an honorable guy, but there are certain things he's honorable about. Like he would not have murdered Bran via another person. <laughs> He'll do it himself all day long, but he would not send someone else to do that. And that's something you can count on. You can bank on that. Just like you can bank on him not betraying his family too easily. Maybe he will later, because of course, who he is changes when he loses his hand. But at this point, there's several things about him that you can be pretty sure about. You know, he's at least quote unquote dependable in certain ways. So it's bewildering for Catelyn to learn some of these things. The Brandon Rickard Airy stuff is wow to her, but it doesn't really change her purpose because that's to save her daughters and it's going to be hard to divert her from that goal. That's always been the reason she came down to talk to Jamie in the first place. She just got way more than she was expecting in this, out of this conversation. She gets some information as well as uh, more useful information and uh, some that's less information, less useful to her and more useful to us readers. For example, here's one that slips past really easily. Whoa. After Gerald Hightower himself took me aside and said to me, you swore a vow to guard the king, not to judge him. That was the white bull. Loyal to the end and a better man than me. All agree. Such dripping sarcasm there, right? Gerald Hightower was at the Tower of Joy, not at the Trident or King's Landing or protecting Viserys and Danny. He was protecting Jon Snow. He was loyal to the end, all right, but not to Ares. <laughs> he was loyal to Rhaegar and Rhaegar's children, or one child anyway. So that's more of Jamie's bitterness. He's like, this guy was a traitor in his own way too, but everyone says he's a better man. You know, it's just this, he's just beaten down by all these contradictions. So before he sees Cersei again, he's going to get to know Brienne. And that's going to be a lot of fun for us to reread, but there's also a lot of precursors in this moment to the things he says to her, his lament, Brienne about oaths. It's well, we got this one here. It's a, Maybe even a better version of it. I don't know. They're both great. So many vows. They make you swear and swear. Defend the king. Obey the king. Keep his secrets. Do his bidding. Your life for his. But obey your father. Love your sister. Protect the innocent. Defend the weak. Respect the gods. Obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other. Honestly, though, I clearly don't agree with Jamie on quite a few things, especially to this point in the story. He's right. The system of oaths pushed on young men is contradictory. So I'd say that's a truthful statement by him. His bitterness at the world is, as I've said several times, similar to the Hound's. But instead of the Hound's traumatized, angry filter, we have Jamie's sort of laid back, arrogant, privileged filter. But they both wind up in the same place, don't they? King's guard to a horrible king. And for Jamie, that's the same old game, right? So that's that same quote, you swore a vow to guard the king, not to judge. Very similar point. Sandor would describe this as worthy of a privy <laughs> with a much blunter choice of words, to be sure. Jamie, but Jamie's saying the same basic thing, that it's ridiculous that a good knight could watch what Ares did to Rickard and Brandon, stay loyal to him, and still call themselves honorable. Yet 
that's the oath he took. That's the oath all these Kingsguard knights took. So how can, like, that's just a, the system's broken when that can happen, is what kind of what Jamie's point. And Sandor, same thing. And the a big difference here, though, well, maybe it's not a big difference. It's just, it's, it might seem like a big difference, but they, they express it differently. But it's the same point. Jamie just sits back and laughs at all this nonsense. He just you know, has that smirk, like, this is ridiculous. Sandor hates it. Similar result, but they, uh, their demeanor is different in facing it. Jamie and Sandor would probably agree on a lot of other things if they ever got the chance, but instead of a man who could be a knight in a second if he wanted to, but really doesn't, he's going to spend the first part of his POV arc with the person who badly wants to be a knight, but can't be. <laughs> Brienne, obviously. And perhaps Jamie will be the one to change that if the show's best episode of season eight, according to me and many others, may have revealed. We can hope for that. Now, speaking of truths, tough truths, well, <laughs> Jamie has something to say about that as well. Oh, it's truth you want? Be careful, my lady. Tyrion says that people often claim to hunger for truth, but seldom like the taste when it's served up. A major discussion they have is Bran. The two attempts on his life, Jamie's, and what's very likely Joffrey's, but could be Littlefinger's. <laughs> so she just can't seem to bring herself to admit while this evidence is pointing, though. Other people probably who didn't have this, this connection to Littlefinger in the past would be able to make the conclusion more easily. But she's got wrapped up feelings for Littlefinger. Not like she likes him in that sense. She's not like romantically into him, obviously. But she is not seeing him for what he is. And that's part of the problem here. So here's another little quote from Jamie. A golden sword, don't you know? Until his blood ran red down the blade. Those are the Lannister colors. Red and gold. Now compare that to what he says a few paragraphs later, where the red and gold yield to fire. As for Lord Rickard, the steel of his breastplate turned cherry red before the end, and his gold melted off his spurs and dripped down into the fire. So, yeah. <laughs> How about that? That's some red, gold, blood, and fire stuff there. Taking uh, a little detour here, I want to ask y'all, what did you think the first time you read this chapter when Kat asked for Brienne's sword? It's, uh, it's even a little set up with, Jamie upending the flagon and getting some wine as red as blood on his face, which might look like very short-term foreshadowing in a sense, or fake foreshadowing. That's not foreshadowing. This is fake foreshadowing. There's a difference. So this is that same person who, who nicknamed himself Love is Poison. When she read that chapter, she immediately, or this chapter, she immediately texted me and said, I'm so glad that Catelyn kills Jamie here. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. He doesn't, she does not do that. Now, importantly, this is uh, Rob is going to forgive her in a way that sets himself up to be absolved for his own dalliance. And the reason I bring that up now, it's because it's echoing Jamie's infamous comment, the things I do for love, because that is the core of all three of these incidents. Rob is going to marry Jane because of love and honor. Jamie is going to save, you know, is trying to save his kids and Cersei for love. And Catelyn, of course, is all about love when uh, she's thinking of her kids. Joe points out that it's really interesting to think about Catelyn, this quote, never watched Bran climb with their hearts in their throats. Bran, pride and terror so mingled, they seemed as one. So it's a, he calls it a terribly tough line to consider as part of a reread because, you know, Bran is loving climbing, we see from his point of view, and it's just, a, from his point of view, Cat's just disciplining. But, on her point of view, when you see it from her, in her shoes, you get this terror side of the argument that she's really concerned with keeping her son safe, but also proud of him for his abilities and for his bravery. 
And it's pretty sad that Bran has not learned or never did learn that she was proud of him for that as, as much as he was scared. So we could have a huge discussion on Catelyn's presence, how it might have affected Clash of Kings, like I said. Um, and uh, if, if, he had, if he, had, he had been in different places. But I brought that up earlier. But one other point related to that is that even though her guilt perhaps is misplaced because she couldn't maybe have stopped what happened in the North, maybe she could have, but let's say she couldn't have. She still would have rather died with her sons than you know, died apart from them. On the other hand, she still wants to save her daughters, and she can't do that if she's gone. There's a maybe mention here of guest rights. Hmm, quote. Theon has mounted their heads on the walls of Winterfell. Theon Greyjoy ate at my table since he was a boy of 10. Joe doesn't think she's consciously invoking the guest right here, but it's interesting anyway, given what's to come in Storm. It's really fun to go back and look at Jamie's pre-POV chapters, now that we have so much more knowledge of him. This is kind of something I alluded to earlier on, that we see later from his POV that he was bothered by losing to Rob. He acts like, eh, whatever, you know, it happened. He tricked me. It was a, you know, I don't, it was a dirty trick. He, it did really bother him though. He's just putting up that front. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what he's been taught to do. You don't show that kind of weakness. On the other hand though, his sword fighting confidence, not at all a front. He is very much ultra confident, ultra skilled and, you know, justifiably so. And it's, part of who he is and that's why losing that part of him is so huge because it wasn't a front he's not like oh now i can just beat the real me no he the real me was the real him was an incredible generationally talented sword fighter and of course keeping jamie sort of villainous here is important even though there's little some signs of his honor that he points out that he doesn't really it's kind of hinted at, not even hinted at, he says that he doesn't really care about other people other than his family and his close family only, not even his children, which that's a a point that's going to make him look very villainous in a lot of readers' eyes, especially parents, but really anyone, potentially. He finally admits that it's an unresolved issue as at the end of Dance, meaning the murder of, his attempted murder of Bran. He never really faces guilt for it. He never really feels bad about it so you got to wonder that this is a really important moment it's jamie and and catlin coming together it's going to happen again it's a it's a cliffhanger for us right now we're waiting to see what happens when jamie faces catlin a second time as lady stoneheart and well if he hasn't felt guilt for what he did to bran before she may bring that up and say hey did you even feel guilty or something i don't know what she's gonna say she can't hardly talk but that's gonna be super interesting Okay, a couple of thoughts from you guys. Ryman the Rhymer, I loved a maid as red as autumn, Ryman sang, with sunset in her hair. Mm. So yet again, Tyrion's song is, is uh, dropped in there, the song that Tyrion associates with Tysha. But in this case, red as autumn, sunset in her hair. That's a different, uh, that's a different description. So we get, I guess this is a different lyric, or maybe he's changing the words. I'm not clear on that, but it's interesting either way. I like the idea of it, you know, a whole song with different stanzas all about the seasons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that's that's how I've point. always pictured it. Um, I love it. Sure. Made as white as winter. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, like I, I was wondering uh, if he's white as winter with hair as the silver winter snow. I don't know. Okay. But yeah. uh, 
I just because I've sometimes <laughs> associated it with uh, John as well with the red hair, you know, with Egret, yeah, yeah, and then he sense. has he'll have Val a little bit or Danny, anyway, yeah, or both at the same time. Lucky guy. <laughs> <laughs> The dragon must have a threesome. <laughs> <laughs> so again, Aemon the Dragon Knight versus Cregan Stark comes up here, or I'm going to bring it up rather, not again. But Aemon the Dragon Knight is the again part, and Cregan Stark is, is my addition to this moment. So as Jamie is telling Catelyn what about the, Rickard's pending death, he says this. Stark armored himself as for battle, thinking to duel one of the Kingsguard. Me, perhaps. And well, we know that Jamie points at his age being named the Kingsguard, the youngest. Well, prior to him, if not the youngest, one of the youngest was Aemon the Dragon Knight, who famously loved his sister. <laughs> and uh, their older brother, Aegon the Unworthy, is a direct parallel to Robert Baratheon. So this is just a big set of large parallels. It's interesting to think that Aemon the Dragon Knight once dueled Cregan Stark. We don't know the circumstances of that duel. We've long wondered what the circumstances were. I kind of think it probably wasn't a duel to the death, just a duel like a, an exhibition or something like that. But that aside, this is a parallel to that because uh, Rickard Stark dueling perhaps Jamie didn't happen. It wasn't Jamie. It turned out to be fire, obviously. But it really makes me think of that. Tree Girl, Cat and many of us, miss what's behind Jamie's arrogance. This is another kind of related to Sandor, kind of Sansa kind of thing. She says that, yeah, he's ultra-privileged, but he's also isolated and lonely. She uses the phrase that he's terminally special. He doesn't see being in the Kingsguard as honorable because, well, all that stuff about Ares, and because his naming to the Kingsguard was revenge on Tywin. It was just one of these one-upsmanship games. He was just caught up in a someone's petty nonsense, i.e. more BS. So how is he supposed to feel like that's a good thing? How is he supposed to be feeling honor and nobility about that appointment when he knows the reason was just ultra-pettiness between two older men? And yeah, Jamie's not a happy guy. He has all this privilege, and it's correct to acknowledge that. But he's still, it's also correct to acknowledge that it doesn't make him happy. It doesn't make him a fulfilled person. He doesn't have, yeah, he's safer than most people. He's got money, but it doesn't make him happy. Uh, Archmaster Rennie points out the small quote, a shaggy beard covered his face once so like the Queen's. That is perhaps an indication of this beginning of separation between Jamie and Cersei, who were inseparable, who they're, uh, they're obviously twins. They have so much in common. People couldn't tell them apart. That's starting to change. You can tell them apart <laughs> a little more so. And this is just the beginning of that fracturing because, you know, it's only going to be, what, Jamie two or three that he gets his hand cut off in A Storm of Swords? All right, that's it for Catelyn 7. Let's go to Theon 5. The one where Asha passes through, a.k.a. the gang murders their own. The first line is, The sky was a gloom of cloud. The woods, dead and frozen. Ooh, Theon's bad dreams are escalating and the guilt is palpable. He dreams of direwolves with child heads and bloody mouths. Yikes. Uh, and he dreams of the miller's wife, whose name he can't recall, though he recalls her body because he's gross. <laughs> Theon's guilt and unworthiness may have literally saved the gang hiding in the crypts. 
Lewin wants to bury the Miller's children down there per, where they belong, or so he thinks, because he thinks it's Brandon Rickon. But Theon adamantly denies it. Perhaps he's also troubled by the idea of burying non-Stark bones down there. His head is all wrapped up in identity and where he belongs, and so it kind of fits that he wouldn't think it proper or right, even with all his scumbaggery, to put the non-Starks down there. He's also aware of heading down to the crypts much later in A Dance of Dragons when Lady Dustin wants him to guide her there. He feels a dread. He feels a sense of unbelonging when he's in the crypts. So it definitely fits this little mini theory here. She gets him to admit, too, Lady Dustin does, that he hates and loves the Starks because he wanted to be one of them, as she does. Near the end of the chapter, he has a series of thoughts that perhaps reflect this exact thing. He watched the forest go from gray to green below him as light filtered through the silent trees. On his left, he could see tower tops above the inner wall, their roofs gilded by the rising sun. The red leaves of the weirwood were a blaze of flame among the green. Ned Stark's tree, he thought, and Stark's wood, Stark's castles, <laughs> Stark's sword, Stark's gods. This is their place, not mine. I am a Greyjoy of Pike, born to paint a kraken on my shield and sail the great salt sea. I should have gone with Asha. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a recurring theme with Theon that he realizes what he should have done too late. Um, he, it's not that he's incapable of, of, of having realized the correct move in the first place. It's that he's always just so wrapped up in his own emotions, his own pride, his own... Uh, desire to prove himself and his lack of identity, his struggles with identity, it throws him off. Like we've said about Cersei, this is such a strong parallel between the two of them. They make mistakes when they are fully capable of doing the right thing if they had a clear head, but neither of them have clear heads very often. So much later in the Prince of Winterfell chapter from A Dance of Dragons, Theon sees the Stark banner hung for Jane Poole as she prepares to marry Ramsay as Arya, and again, Theon thinks, Wrong. It's wrong. As wrong as her eyes. The arms of House Pool were a blue plate on white, framed by a gray treasure. Those were the arms they should have hung. Like, see, this he's so wrapped up in this. He's just, no, I, these identities are wrong. <laughs> he's just, it's a big deal to him. And that's really interesting because it's a big deal to him now, but he doesn't admit it as much. And later, he starts to kind of understand it when, when Lady Dustin gets him to admit that I wanted to be one. That's kind of, that's a revelation he really could have used now, or at least before he took Winterfell. So here's where the bad dreams peak, which is the end of the chapter. And he, like John, although not much else is similar in their dreams, he wakes up screaming. Winterfell wanted him dead. The very night they had returned from Acorn Water, Gelmar the Grim had tumbled down some steps and broken his back. The next day, Agar turned up with his throat slit ear to ear. Jaimir, red nose, became so wary that he shunned wine, took to sleeping in Bernie Coif Quaffenhelm, and adopted the noisiest dog in the kennels to keep him warning. Should anyone try to steal up on his sleeping place? All the same, one morning, the castle woke to the sound of the little dog barking wildly. They found the pup racing around the well, and Red Nose, floating in it, drowned. He could not let the killings go unpunished. Farlin was as likely a, subject, a suspect as any, 
So Theon sat in judgment, called him guilty, and condemned him to death. Yikes, right? This is awful. Gelmar and Gynir and Agar are the three who know the truth of the Miller's boys. They're the three that went with Theon and Reek to do the dirty deed. So Reek slash Ramsay kills them. And that's because, well, don't want, he tells Theon not to let this truth get out, but really that's to his benefit. Ramsay's looking ahead and thinking, yeah, well, I'm going to take Winterfell. My father's going to take Winterfell, whatever, whichever combination of, of goals he has. And he knows that in order to do that, people need to believe that Brandon Rickon are dead. And if there's a couple of people out there that know the truth, well, that might be a problem later. So better to make sure they never talk. And hey, that Which, does happen later. Yeah. <laughs> with Lex Pike, of course. <laughs> that's a great point. And I think you had a guy with, uh, with, with no tongue. He knows the truth. That's great. So here again, we're going to look ahead to A Dance of Dragons. When Theon finds himself back at Winterfell, and though his circumstances have changed considerably, the deaths of several men remind him. It all seemed so familiar, like a mummer show that he had seen before. Only the mummers had changed. Bruce Bolton was playing the part that Theon had played the last time round, and the dead men were playing the parts of Agar, Jainer Rednose, and Gelmar the Grim. Reek was there too, he remembered, but he was a different Reek, a Reek with bloody hands and lies dripping from his lips, sweet as honey. Reek, Reek, it rhymes with sneak. And here also is the chapter that contains a lot of these sweet as honey promises and lies, right? The the, the biggest one, well, not the biggest, but one of the bigger ones is yet to come, the one that he'll come back with men, (laughs) which I guess that technically wasn't a lie. It was just uh, misdirection. Theon's final chapter is all about the showdown with Roderick, followed by Ramsay arriving and burning Winterfell. By then, Theon is done with executing people because he's got battle coming up. He wants to hang Beth Cassell, but that's more of a you know a device to prevent the attack. Even after his torture, though, think about this. After being tortured, this is from the Ghost in Winterfell chapter in A Dance of Dragons. He was trapped here with the ghosts, the old ghosts from the crypts and the younger ones that he had made himself, Micken and Farlin, Gynir Rednose, Agar, Gelmar the Grim, the miller's wife from Acorn Water, and her two young sons, and all the rest. My work, my ghosts, they are all here, and they are angry. He also thinks of the miller's children in the uh, Winds of Winter spoiler chapter. He's hanging by his arms, captured by Stannis and in complete agony, but he still thinks about them. But there's a time prior to that when it's, it's basically when he's first uh, getting out of the dungeon, his, or the early phase of his Advance of Dragons arc. He tries not to think of, of anything that came before he, quote, learned his name. He says, he tells himself it really was Brandon Rickon because thinking about the truth would be almost as painful as Ramsay's playing knife. Wow, that's how guilty he feels over all this, that playing is almost as bad. Or that it's, it's, it's almost as bad as playing. Playing is worse, but this guilt is almost as bad. So, wow, that is just... Picture him now. That's why I jumped ahead to Dance with Dragons and, and Winds of Winter so much, because it's, it just explains where Theon's going to be later with all these feelings, and it's intense. And, of course, Ramsay hangs over all this, obviously. It's, all this is to his benefit. Killing of the witnesses, obviously, and uh, Theon is a proxy 
for the Bolton atrocities. He's gonna, they're going to blame everything on Theon. They're going to say, yeah, it was Theon who burned Winterfell. It was Theon who killed the, all the people there. Uh, so he's just doing their duty. So he, basically the Boltons are like, hey, we're the most powerful house in the North now. <laughs> it's our duty. <laughs> we're facing down with Stannis, who also claims that the throne is his duty. The, Bol- the Boltons are like, yeah, there's no more Starks. It's our duty to rule the North. And of course, let's not forget that it was Ramsay's idea to kill the Miller and his wife and the children as proxies in the first place. But what might have slipped beneath your radar is that Ramsay's mother was also a young Miller's wife. Bah! Yuck! Now we have Asha arriving. This is less dark. (laughs) It's a little, there's a little more conversation. And yeah, let's have the quote. Theon washed the sweat and sleep from his body and took his own good time dressing. Asha had let him wait long enough. Now it was her turn. He chose a satin tunic striped black and gold and a fine leather jerkin with silver studs and only then remembered that his wretched sister put more stock in blades than beauty. Cursing, he tore off the clothes and dressed again in felted black wool and ring mail. Around his waist, he buckled sword and dagger remembering the night she had humiliated him at his own father's table. Well, there's blade. She said, it says she put more stock in blades than beauty, but then he also adds his crown, his awful, ugly crown. (laughs) You may have taken that concept a little too far. She laughs at him basically. And it's really interesting too, that he remembered that his wretched sister put more stock in blades than beauty. That's the ironborn. That's not his sister. All of the ironborn are like that. So he's he's focusing that on her when really it's his father said the same thing. His father's like, you pay the iron price for this gold necklace, etc. And this goes along with uh, what we were saying before about how he, when he's clear-headed, he makes decent decisions. But when he's not, which is most of the time, he, he makes a lot of small to large mistakes. Here's another example. In this case, he's like, I'm going to make... Asha wait on me for a while, and then I'm going to show up after she's waited, because that's how power is, is, you know, displayed. But it's a mistake, because he realizes, no, actually, I should have sent for her. She wasn't waiting for him. She was just hanging out in the hall, eating and drinking. There's, that's, not, that's not waiting, really. I mean, you might be waiting for Theon to show up, but she's doing other things. You're not like, they're not waiting for him to be able to begin dinner. So she, uh, and like the rest of us, <laughs> can't believe how badly Theon is mucking up his great success. Again, and she admits it, taking Winterfell was pretty clever and well-executed, but this follow-up plan to hold it is stupid, ill-conceived, badly managed, whatever you want to say, negative. Mm-hmm. Asha even tells Theon what the best play is. She should have said, what you could do is this, or what you could have done is this. Dad might not might even name you heir now. Respect one, but no. Uh, which is funny that Asha's pointing this out because she would have been the one displaced <laughs> by Theon being successful. Uh, so she's maybe kind of rubbing it in his face. And that maybe leads us to the possibility that she was using some reverse psychology here. That by telling him the best plan, she ensures he'll never do it because it came from her. And she's, you know, involved. he's involved in this same kind of game of one-upsmanship that we see through a lot of other POVs with different characters. Joe points out that the beheading of Farlin is placed wonderfully, <laughs> wonderfully tragic, you could say, because of John's own thoughts about following in the footsteps of Ned Stark, re-egrit. 
he couldn't do it. He couldn't look into her eyes and 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 take her life because he, you know, maybe she didn't deserve it. Theon can't even get it right when he's trying to do the correct Ned thing, even though we know that he's lying about it because he knows Farland's not guilty. And this is also fair to point out, or at least worthy to point out, this is the equivalent scene on the show is, is uh, Theon executing Sir Rickard. I mean, Sir Roderick, rather. And how he messes it up, and it's, it's a really bad execution, whereas he thinks that Ned never needed more than one stroke. So he's trying to be like Ned, can't be like Ned, fails to be like Ned, and it's for reasons that maybe it's because the events that led up to this that Theon engaged in were very un-Ned-like. So, hmm. Now, let's move on. Uh, the, thir- the, the third dream that Theon has here is uh, really, it's a bit of an oddity if you take it as being prophetic because the Robin Grey win bit, Meaning you can maybe see that as, as leading up to the Red Wedding or, or a sign of the Red Wedding. It's definitely a sign of the Red Wedding. But Joe Buckley says it's a representation of Theon's guilt. He feels bad, feels guilty that he betrayed Rob. And he's so he's imagining Rob and Greywind is dead because turning on them is going to lead to that. Uh, and that's a good theory because we're not clear on why exactly Theon would be seeing prophecy. Now, we do have a reason, though. We do have a reason, and it might be that he's sleeping in Ned Stark's bed, which is made werewood. So here's where we get a little tinfoily, but maybe not. If um, I don't know if Joe Magician is out in the stream today, but if he is, I'm going to touch on a theory that relates to a theory of his. He is Joe wisely took a look at the book Dying of the Light and the Thousand Worlds Universe setting of George R. R. Martin that includes a concept called Whisper Jewel. A Whisper Jewel is a sort of a piece of sort of fantasy technology, maybe. It's, it's, it's made and it's, it's expressed as technology and not supernatural. But you could see how it would be conceived of as supernatural. The idea is that you can imprint echoes of memory and feeling into a, into a gemstone. And it reminds you of those feelings. It calls those feelings back. And you can give them to somebody else and they can be, they can be shared feelings. So think about that in light of Ned Stark's bed being made of werewood and how maybe werewood things have echoes of visions and, and scenes in them because they used to be conduits for that very thing, for seeing into the past or the future or, or even the present or just seeing things that weren't seen. So that's an interesting little detail with regards to how werewood may work. What, so what, what, what this is building up to, the reason I suggest this, is that there's other things in this dream that, uh, that Theon has that are peculiar, such as the presence of Rickard and Lyanna. Why are they there? Why does he dream of Rickard and Lyanna? He doesn't have any guilt over them. He, there's nothing that, he had nothing to do with them. Lyanna was dead long before he came to Winterfell. He, she was dead when he was like seven years old, or not even seven. He was, not, he was like three or something. So, uh, and Laura Brandos points out that he doesn't, that there's no, no Benjen in the dream either. There's also no Ned in the dream. So, pack all this together. If the theory is that these are imprints, that Theon is like dreaming of the imprinted stuff that's in the werewood bed, well, that would be why there's no Ned in it. Because it's Ned's 
dreams, Ned's echoes, and the echoes of his thoughts that Theon's picking up on. Again, this is pretty tinfoily, but you can see why there's some grounding and there's a lot of connections, here, a lot of dots that are connected by this. And regardless of what you think about this dream, whatever your interpretations are, it's hard to deny that these certain figures being present is peculiar. Rickard and Liana, why? Again, why? Why are they in this dream? He, he, Theon has no reason to care about that. So, and, and this is a good point from um, listener Matthew Forster, who says, I do think it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes how well George R. Martin can write forward. Good, good point. Uh, this is a very horrific chapter, and it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes that, uh, that that's what's going on, that George is writing horror scenes because we think we're reading fantasy. That dream, Theon's dreams are very horrific. Really good catch of um, by a couple other people, Jeremy Gabriel and Laura Brandos. Uh, I wanted to mention Jeremy. I mentioned Laura talking about the dream. She, he's, Jeremy asked about why Rickard and Liana to put us on this uh, course of, of discussion. River Shannon Aloya notices that Liana is wearing a gown in this dream. This, I think, is a huge catch because it's a gown. It's not a dress. It's not a burial shroud. It's a gown. Marriage gown is quite possibly what's being suggested here, which in turn suggests that John is legitimate, right? That's huge. Never caught that before. Many rereads, never noticed the gown. That's very important. Some very specific, precise garment. Now, uh, his patience was at an end. How do you expect me to hold Winterfell if you bring me only 20 men? Well, Theon, maybe you shouldn't kill some of your own men. That might help. But I love it's 20 men. It's 20 good men. But actually, it's only 10 men because 10 of them go back with Asha. Ah. <laughs> it was Stefan B. who pointed me in the direction of maybe this is reverse psychology with Asha suggesting the, the, the right plan and just so, to be sure that Theon doesn't take it <laughs> to make sure he stays there and screws it all up. But on the other hand, there does seem to be some, Asha does seem to have some real sympathy for Theon uh, as Kim. She's not, uh, she's no Euron. <laughs> she's no Victorian. Many people point to the repeated use of the word mercy in this chapter and wonders if it means Arya will be the one to finally give him that gift. Given where he is now, it's hard to see how that could happen. Stannis is the one that has him, and how is he going to? How is Stannis going to let him live and then him survive, only to be killed by Arya later? That might seem kind of remote, but hey, things could change. Regardless, it's very interesting to see the the, the thought of mercy because he himself is thinking of mercy, but he's the one who kind of needs it. And he's going to need it even more, you know, after his last chapter, when he goes to the dungeons of the bread fort. Here's another good example of things changing, right? It's talking about how can we get from Arya killing him to out of the clutches of Stannis? Well, could you ever imagine yourself feeling sympathy for Theon after reading this chapter, whenever you read it the first time? I mean, even if you find Theon irredeemable, for the most part, even if you believe he deserved death, you probably didn't believe he deserved Ramsey. I'm not even sure Ramsey deserves Ramsey, but I wouldn't lift a finger to help him. That's that. Let us move on to Sansa Five. The gang sings a pre-battle hymn, aka the one where Cersei explains the dearth of sacking songs. Quote: The first line is, "They had been singing in the sept all morning since the very." since the first report of enemy sales had reached the castle. Indeed. Uh, Sansa's loathing for Joffrey is majorly on display here. It's great because she's got love for basically everyone, and except him, very distinctly. 
And Joffrey is perhaps never more like Viserys in this chapter. He'll kiss it again when I return and taste my uncle's blood. Only if one of your Kingsguard kills him for you. Yeah. And then she nails him with the, oh, my brother always goes to the most dangerous part of the battle. But, you know, that's is that where you're going to go? <laughs> and then afterwards, she's immediately drawn to the singing. After her uh, little short exchange with Joffrey, she hears the singing in the sap. And she's drawn to it. Isn't it just like a, a comfort thing? It's that she likes it. She likes singing. I personally, I, I love to sing in groups. This is not singing for fun. This is, you know, karaoke or something. But this is, it's still just, you can kind of feel that how singing brings people together. You draw strength from each other. It's shared danger. You're facing this together. Singing together, it strengthens all that. It increases the bond. So let's get this nice lengthy quote about Sansa and her thoughts on all this. Sansa knew most of the hymns and followed along on those she did not know as best she could. She sang along with grizzled old serving men and anxious young wives, with serving girls and soldiers, cooks and falconers, knights and knaves, squires and spit boys and nursing mothers. She sang with those inside the castle, walls and those without, sang with all the city. She sang for mercy, for the living and the dead alike, for Bran and Rickon and Rob for her sister Arya and her bastard brother Jon Snow, away, off on the wall. She sang for her mother and her father, for her grandfather, Lord Hoster, and her uncle and, and her uncle Edmure Tully, for her friend, Jane Poole, for old, drunken King Robert, for Septim Mordain and Ser Dantos and Jory Cassell and Maester Lewin, for all the brave knights and soldiers who would die today and for the children and the wives who would mourn them. And finally, toward the end, she even sang for Tyrion the imp and for the hound and for the hound. He is no true knight, but he saved me all the same, she told the mother. Save him if you can, and gentle the rage inside him. Right on. Okay, so that's a beautiful quote because it just shows... How, there's a lot that can be said here. Sansa's generosity and her grace, I think, are the most important or most glaring things here. She does not feel this intense tribalism so common in Westeros, as well as the real world. She doesn't have these hateful thoughts for people except Joffrey. <laughs> She's got thoughts for people on both sides of the war. She's thinking about every level of suffering, the after, the during. It's an enormous amount of emotional energy that it would take to to think on this while feeling the anxiety and the stress of everything else facing her because, you know, and then it's going to get worse because, you know, Cersei telling her <laughs> they're going to come and get you. You know, Cersei makes it worse. Cersei's paranoia spills over uh, and not all of it is uh, realistic, but more on that later. So yeah, she's basically praying for everyone. Again, except Joffrey. She's gets up as soon as they start talking about Joffrey. Get stands up and walks away. She's like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not praying for him. No way. I'm praying for the opposite. Inside her head, she's constantly, you know, thinking, hope, hoping bad things for him, which is so distinct because her generosity towards everyone else is so huge. So these intense feelings can change one's outlook or put things into perspective. And that's another process happening for Sansa here. She's heard songs about battles before. It's a big part of her early arc is the songs. What happens in the songs? All that. But this is the first time it's been real 
And already the illusion that battle is glorious is gone. But the songs are still real. Remember how, as well, how isolating this all is? King's Landing has learned that Joffrey is terrible, but it's still not widespread how bad he is around Westeros. And a lot of the hate, is, as, we've, as we've gone over in the past, it's focused on Tyrion because Joff is young. They blame Tyrion for managing him poorly. Out, so outside of King's Landing, people's views on Joffrey are even more stark, even meaning that he's blamed for almost nothing. Few people know his personality. Take, for example, Olena and Marjorie later asking Sansa what kind of man he is. They've heard things, but that's it. Hence their need for confirmation. If they knew what kind of man Joffrey was, they wouldn't be asking. That is yet another level of this isolation. So she knows how incredibly awful he is, yet hardly anyone else does. She can't exactly find sympathy for other people who know how awful Joffrey is, you know. And the people who do know how awful he is, there are a few, obviously. They do nothing about it. Even Tyrion only tries to, you know, Tyrion reigns him in a little bit, tries to, but he he doesn't do it consistently. He does it like in these really intense moments. Mostly just kind of stay away from him. They allow a monster to sit the Iron Throne and they lie about the fact that he's a monster. And Sansa has to live with that lie. No wonder people like Jaime and Sandor just think this whole thing is BS. And Sansa's seeing some of that too for herself. So this chapter has several examples of, of Sansa getting better at lying because that's, uh, talk, speaking of living with lies, Sansa's had to live with all these lies and she's getting pretty good at telling her own. It's been a, a buildup, like people commenting on her lies and whether she's doing it well or not. This chapter has several examples of her saying one thing and thinking the complete opposite. And she does seems to do it pretty smoothly without stumbling, without questioning herself. It's just becoming natural. So Joffrey, though, uh, uh, another level of him, uh, it's not just lying about who he is. It's, it's simple self-preservation. But there's other lies here um, and that Sansa is not aware of. So she's aware of these lies about Joffrey, but she's not aware of these lies about Stannis. To be fair, Cersei and a lot of the other people, they don't know either. They don't know what kind of man Stannis is as clearly as the readers do. But so here's the question. Is Stannis a threat to the Sept itself? Yeah. The people in it? Not really. Cersei? Yeah. Okay. And any other Lannister? Sure. The greatness of Stannis is a deep rabbit hole. I've criticized him a lot so far and will again, but I'll also praise him. And this is one of those times where at least relative to the rest, he's better. In that Stannis' men are the most disciplined of any of the claimants, and it isn't particularly close. An uncomfortable truth seems to be that not even Rob and Blackfish and the other northern lords are particularly concerned with how the western commoners are treated by their soldiers. Everyone pretty much just leaves the commoners to, to suffer the brunt. It's just like Vara says. One exception might be Danny, but she's not actually a claimant yet. She's still in Karth, you know, doing her thing. It's going to be soon. But it's not yet. So right now, it's kind of interesting to, to think of Sandus that way. After the Battle of the Wall, he has three men gelded, meaning their members cut off, for raping wildling women. Now, probably other men got away with it. He probably didn't catch all of them. And justice doesn't undo the crime. It, it, those women still suffer, regardless of the justice done to the men afterwards. Still, it's a huge difference to even Rob might just allow that to happen. It's a dark thought. Or maybe, maybe not allowed to happen so much as turn a blind eye to it or not stop his men from doing it. Again, though, Cersei doesn't know all this. Not consistently, not thoroughly. And if she did, 
she probably wouldn't do anything much differently, at least on the outside. She might think about it differently, but she'd still try to run the propaganda route and be like, everybody needs to be worried about Stannis. In her next chapter, this is going to get discussed in great detail, but I want to bring it up now because it puts more of a direct face on the shared dangers. These Blackwater and pre-Blackwater chapters move pretty quickly and have a lot to do with each other. They have a lot of overlap, a lot of two people seeing similar things from different points of view. So Sansa is going to be told by Cersei about the fate many of them face as women, starting with the Highborn. Again, this is Sansa 6 of her next chapter, this quote. Their birth protects them, Cersei admitted, though not as much as you'd think. Each one's worth a good ransom, but after the madness of battle, soldiers often seem to want flesh more than coin. Even so, a golden shield is better than none. Out in the streets, the women won't be treated near as tenderly, nor will our servants. And so she has ill and pain there to save them from what exactly? I mean, getting allegedly from to stop them from being raped. But again, that's not super likely coming from Stannis. So hmm, interesting. On the other hand, this is a different Stannis that we're seeing here early on. He might not have reached the point where he's more about uh, thinking on these lines. And he has a lot more lords under him that go their own way, that do what they want to do. And they might allow awful things to happen to captives and women, things like that. So in any case, you have this ability for, for Cersei to spin things about Stannis because of his religion. It's easy to spin him into being hated by the gods or cruel or a harsh man. No one wants his king because of things like that. Propaganda is just a big part of war, y'all, right? Even from this all the way back to the crazy dueling rumors of Lancaster incest and Selyse sleeping with Patchface and everything in between. Never forget that in between all these battles, there's a lot of information war happening, even in an era like this where people don't think of the information age and, and people not having access to information is such a different uh, perspective and paradigm. A couple thoughts from Joe here. Um, it's, it's superb, he says, to see Sansa put her fellow Northerners at the front of her prayers list while actively hoping for Joffrey's death. However, Count Sansa might have seemed on the outside. There is no, simply no stilling the wolf inside her. Yeah. And this is what I would speak, kind of speaks to what I was suggesting about the back and forth constancy of her saying one thing and thinking another throughout the scene. Because, yeah, she's got this front, this facade of soft and weak and helpless. And it's easy for people to believe that because she's, what, 13 now? She's just a young girl with no one you know, no one helping her. Uh, her family is far away. She's a hostage. Everybody basically knows that. But that's, so it's easy to, for other people to think of her that way. Yet we know from her internal monologue that she is gaining stronger. All this adversity, all this trauma, it is not breaking her. It is making her stronger. Joe also says this would have been a great chapter to see Cersei's point of view for. That's a fun thing to do is to think about the different perspectives because it's part of what we're trying to do anyway. We're trying to get in Cersei's head as we read this chapter we're in Sansa's head. We're trying to get in Cersei's head. We're trying to get in Sandor's head. We're trying to get in all these other characters' heads when we're not in their heads. So there's a dichotomy of characters whose heads we eventually get into. It's, it's a too big of a rabbit hole to think of every single character in Song of Ice and Fire and what they might be thinking at any given time. But it's different with characters that we later get their POVs for because they think about events that happened before they were a POV. 
We talked about that with Jamie earlier. It's certainly going to happen with Cersei. Cersei's going to think about things that happened before she became a POV. And that's going to round out her character in ways that we don't have now. But we do have it now because this is a reason. Uh, I had had neglected to grab a couple of questions here from patron Paul Barry talking about Tyrion, but this is a decent place to talk about some of them. The Cersei's constant indignation (laughs) about people coming for them. This is a really funny one. It's like, why are we plagued with so many treasons? What injury has House Lannister ever done these wretches? I mean, it's the same thing Cersei's worried about here. She's worried about Stannis coming and sacking the city, which is probably an exaggeration, but that is what happened. The Lannisters sacked King's Landing. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago, really. I mean, it was a generation ago, but there's plenty of people who remember it, plenty of people who were alive, and their kids who weren't there were told about it because it was such a major, major event. And, well, he Paul says it's like a uh, Monty Python. It's like the movie Life of Brian where it's like, what have the Romans ever done for us other than the water, roads, protection, it's safe to walk at night. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, hope you all have actually seen Monty Python's The Life of Brian. So you get that reference. If you haven't, you really should check it out. It is one of my favorite comedy movies of all time. Here's a really simple quote that is a recurring theme that I really like to talk about. Sir Mandon Moore wrote at his side, white steel, icy bright. Yeah. That's Sansa seeing uh, Mandon go off with a Tyrion and Joffrey. And well, it's, it's yet again, we have these sort of references to the Kingsguard being kind of like the others. You got ice or white shadow, uh, Things like that are applied to the Kingsguard a lot. Phrases like that. And um, white steel, ice tea bright. That's just, yeah. That, that's, how can you not think of the North? And you just you hear that phrase alone. Take away Sir Mandon Moore and just look at white steel, icy bright. You're going to think of the North. You're going to think of beyond the wall, probably. Or at least you'll get there eventually. Something I've been saying that Esther McGriff from Facebook says in a different way is Sansa's internal monologue throughout this chapter is everything. Yeah, it really is because it, it says so much about who she is as a character and how she's changing. Jeremy Gabriel says, Sansa being brave in spite of all her fear, it's her duty, right? It's this Ned's, it's her being like her father and mother. Being, there's something that her parents would be proud of if they could see it. Now, look what Cersei notes her duty as. Jeremy wants to take a look at that. Her duty, as she sees it, is to threaten everyone and to kill them so that they don't fall in the hands of Stannis. Basically, like, it's the old... If you can't have it, no one. If I can't have it, no one can. Attitude. She's just, if I can't have it, I'm burning it all down. Not the literal burning, of course. That's that's for later. <laughs> Marin Mayhus noticed that Lysa was not mentioned in her prayers. Uh, but also suggests that maybe that's because the, the veil isn't at war right now. Which is a fair point. Although, on the other hand, Santa thinks of dead people like Robert. So, <laughs> it's, it's interesting though. Noteworthy either way. John Hagee says that uh, Cersei's outfit is interesting here. She's dressed in a white gown versus dressing seductively, which she explains, you know, like she would try to seduce Stannis if she could, but that's not going to happen. But John also points out that it's brave for her to wear a white dress while drinking all that wine. (laughs) Though, to be fair, she does switch to milk because she wants to keep her wits about her, as you said, which is... A lot of readers commented on that, saying, picture Lena Headey just drinking milk. <laughs> you know, especially out of like a wine glass. That would seem 
That would look weird. Wait, what? I watched that in the show. Could have like <laughs> that would have been the big point of discussion. Be like, why was she drinking milk? What kind of milk was it from? Was it from a cow? Was, was it, it from a giant? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she switched to the hard stuff like Gregor. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, but the point of Cersei dressing in a white gown was to appear, you know, virginal and, you know, like the kind of presentation she thinks Stannis would expect from a woman because Stannis is all not about sexuality and he's more about women being a specific role and so Cersei's trying to be that uh, it's, it's sort of a desperation or move but also she loses nothing by trying Rebea Lady of Waves points to Cersei side-eyeing Osfried Kettleblack that is when talking about what they can expect from swords if things all go south if the if Stannis gets through the walls. They can't expect the sellswords to stay honest, which is interesting because Cersei is trusting Osrid for several things, but clearly she's not so foolish as to trust him for this. Tree Girl says, uh, has a nice um, closing argument, not argument, but thought about Sansa uh, as it gets to the end of her arc here in Clash and as a notation of how she's growing. She's more satisfying to read as she gets wiser and gains clarity. I agree with that. That's very true because you know, naive Sansa makes sense. It makes sense to have that. She's got to travel through that point to get to a more wiser point. You don't just start off being wise and, you know, starting off as a 12 year old girl or 11 or whatever, however old she was, you have to, you can't just, you got to go through that process. That's part of a lot of these arcs, their growth. And, but seeing her actually arrive and get there is satisfying. And you know that going forward, it's going to be even more satisfying because she's going to be running things more like she's going to be less of a vessel for seeing what's happening and more someone driving things around her. A good comparison to this is Ned and Tyrion. Ned is when he's handed the King, he's constantly being led around. Like, I don't know what's happening. I got to go check this out. I got to check this out. He's always behind the ball, right? Other people are making, making moves and he's reacting to. Contrast that to Tyrion who is making moves. He's making other people react to him. And that's kind of the, what we're seeing with Sansa here. Sansa's trans, uh, transitioning from a Ned to a, well, not a Tyrion, but in this example, a Tyrion. <laughs> and so I guess it kind of fits a little bit that she'll marry him a little bit later. Not in, not in the other sense, but given their connection in that sense. So, uh, Stefan B, final comment. Um, Strong Helm's deep vibe here for the battle. Oh, that's a good point. They do, they sing, they, they gather, and they try to keep each other feeling uh, not too scared. He also points out that Lannister's probably goofed here by not taking Sansa more seriously. Pointed out at the beginning of the discussion of this chapter how they kind of, she can go where she wants. And in fact, that was Sansa 4. She can go where she wants, but has nowhere she wants to go. They probably should have assigned someone to guard her at all times. They probably should have had some like assigned bodyguard to, to watch her. Not necessarily a king's guard. That's probably too much, but just somebody. And it does make sense to do that but, uh, yeah, it wasn't. Anyway, notable there. Oh, oh, one more comment has popped up. It's from Here Be Dragons, a.k.a. Stephen Stark. That is the name of his new channel. He's, well, he's renamed his channel Here Be Dragons, which is a great name for the channel, by the way. And, well, my, his guest today is me, so I'm taking a little break after we wrap this up here, after we do our thanks and outro stuff. Then I will be over on his channel at 6 Eastern. And it's a, you know, it's his show called uh, 
I know that nerd. And some of you might be thinking, hey, didn't you just do this like a month ago? We tried to. We tried to. But StreamYard was not working. And that was the service we had set up on. And it just kept failing. We tried. We tried. Didn't work. So anyway, long story short, we had to reskill. So thanks to Stephen for in advance for uh, not just for the Super Chats, but for having me on his show. That's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, hopefully a lot of y'all can make it over there and check it out and ask some questions or just uh, hang out in the chat and do your thing. Next time up, it's 11 of 12, and it's mostly the Battle of Blackwater. But of course, we have our colorful titles to break down the individual themes. Starting with Davos 3, the gang turns Blackwater green. A.K.A. the one with the dancing 50-foot-high flame beam. (laughs) And Tyrion 13. The gang is shamed by Tyrion, A.K.A. the one where the hound quits. Sansa 6. The gang feasts during battle, A.K.A. the one where Cersei wants Joffrey to hide. Tyrion 14. Ser Moore's last swim, A.K.A. the one where Tyrion loses face. (laughs) Sansa 7, the one where Sansa sings for Sandor, a.k.a. the gang sees Renly's ghost. And finally, Daenerys 5, the gang meets strong Bellwas and Arston, a.k.a. the last dance in a car. Uh, last minute super chat from John Hagee. Thanks for sharing John's, uh, so rather, George's <laughs> reading of The Forsaken. For anyone curious, yeah, well. <laughs> we were talking in the chat about The Forsaken and... Um, people didn't realize that we have an audio recording of it that isn't posted publicly because that isn't the norm to do such a yeah. thing. But if you want a copy, you can send us an email or if you have me on Facebook, you can message me there. Whatever you prefer. Yeah. Um, it's so really, it's really, everyone. it's really great to hear it. I have to say in his voice, like his yeah. booming voice. It's really actual George. Yeah. Actual <laughs> George reading it. I have to recommend it. All right. So thanks to everybody who came today. Thanks super, super much to Ashea for, uh, it, it was more difficult for her today because I'm not in the location with her. We aren't able to do our usual look at each other for visual cues. And yes, that's why at the beginning the of this episode. we not quite as, as uh, efficient as Yeah, <laughs> and I'm not using the mixer. I'm using a microphone. So my hands aren't used to pressing mute and unmute on it. But also, that's why at the beginning of this episode, people will hear me go, go. Because <laughs> normally I do a visual like, Just you know. Just finger like, go ahead. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's like countdown one, two, three, and then, but I couldn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So thanks. Also, just along those lines, we have gotten Ashea a new computer. And thanks to a lot of y'all for supporting us. Financial support is the reason we're able to get Ashea a new computer. That's going to pay off for y'all. In two ways. Two ways. One, well, you you tell us. You tell yeah. Me. One, I mean, I did the upgrade because I just can't do the type of After Effects and Premiere Pro animations that I wanted to do. It was it was just totally borked. It was awful. It was so frustrating. I built my PC six years ago. So, anyways, that's one reason it'll be better. Is that we should have fun animations and other visuals in our scripted episodes. And two is that Aziz gets to inherit my old computer, which is much better than his. And it'll allow him to do game streams at his computer if he wants to, rather than taking my computer every other (laughs) Friday. (laughs) Which means we can do them more often. I don't have to, you know, it's good to have a schedule. But the part of the reason we have a schedule is so Shan knows when I'm using her computer. (laughs) She knows when she won't have it. So we can do more game streams. Plus, it will also just help me with editing and recording on my own. Um, things like work on Jenny's song, which again, 
I've recorded the vocals. That's done. I'm going to record the guitar when I get back to Boston. I've done several tapes. And I'm being a, a, a self-critical over a lot of it. Um, so thanks to uh, all y'all for bearing with us as we are slightly uh, less efficient being in separate locations. Big thanks to Joe Buckley for his thoughts this week. They were particularly strong. And again, don't forget to check out his Castles book. As I said, if the link isn't up on our website, it will be soon. And you don't need our website to find it. You can just go straight to Amazon or wherever you buy books. Check it out, see if it's there. Thanks also to Michael Klarfeld, as always. Well, for once, his maps aren't behind me, but, you know, <laughs> he still did our intro. <laughs> he still And he still deserves constant praise and everything he's done for us. Thanks to Joey Townsend for our regular intro music, Joey Kowal for our regular outro cover version of the intro music, and to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Review this week. Thank you again to Radio Westeros for the use of their space. Definitely check Radio Westeros out. They just put out an episode on uh, their last one, Viserys, and their last quiz. You were on the quiz before the last one, right, Shay? And there's been another one since then, but there's been yes, good quiz. The quizzes are always really fun. Thanks a lot to our History of Westeros mods. That is Scott, Rebecca, Laura, um, doing this from memory, who am I forgetting? Jennifer and Tommy. And of course, Ari. You guys do a fantastic job posting the chapters every week, driving the discussion, which leads to things that we didn't think about, which we include in these episodes. Same goes for everyone who contributes to those threads and people who have joined us on Flick, where we have the same threads with different contributors. And of course, last but certainly not least, again, thanks to everyone who is a supporter on Patreon for making all this possible from a financial perspective and from a making us feel good about ourselves perspective, because that means a lot. So again, thank you to everybody, and we will see you next week with more Valar Reedus back at the usual time. Please check out Here Be Dragons for the interview with me, and we'll see you next time. Valar Reedus.